You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. This is a special edition of the podcast. Uh, I am outside of the George W. Bush Presidential Center in Dallas, Texas. Uh, just took a tour, got my photo in the Oval Office, and uh, great A propaganda there. Uh, but if you're in Dallas, check that out. And uh, a couple days ago, I was privileged by a coworker to go along on a trip to Dealey Plaza for the first time. I've never been to Dealey Plaza. Uh, and he had booked a 30-minute tour in a replica car uh, of the Lincoln Continental that Kennedy was in, drove us on the path, and and our tour guide was just somebody that I found uh, engaging and fun and uh, a blast to talk to over the 30-minute tour turned into two and a half hours. Uh, And I think you'll hear why. And my guest today is Robin Brown host, or I guess you're a host, but the proprietor of JFK Custom Tours, which you can find at jfkcustomtours.com. And no matter what you think about the Kennedy assassination or the conspiracies surrounding it, I highly recommend the tour because it was a ton of fun. It was honestly, my three coworkers and I just had such a great time uh, talking to him and getting a feel for it. Uh, My disclaimer is that I don't really know what I believe about the JFK assassination. I just found Robin to be engaging, and I thought you'd find him interesting as a listener. And um, Dealey Plaza, Robin, is a really interesting place to visit because when you're standing there, you realize it, it opens everything up for you because the if you don't know anything about the Kennedy assassination, which our Uber driver... <laughs> After we left you, we got in the Uber. Uh, she goes, so what are you doing in Dealey Plaza? I go, well, that's where Kenny got shot. She goes, that's where it happened? Now, this is a Dallas resident. I just, I was, my mind was blown. Uh, JFK visited Dallas in November, what day? November 22nd. November 22nd in 1963 and uh, was assassinated. There were allegedly, according to the FBI and the Warren Commission, three shots. And he was uh, rushed to Parkland Hospital, where he died about an hour later. Lyndon Johnson became president. Uh, and then there was something called the Warren Commission uh, that was set up by Lyndon Johnson to investigate the death. It had uh, it, Chief Justice Earl Warren as its leader. And they released a report that basically outlined the death of John Kennedy. Uh, so that's just... Your basics. Read the Wikipedia. If you if you don't know anything about the JFK assassination, you might learn some more. But um, so when you go to Dealey Plaza, Robin, it it's a lot smaller than I thought. But you also stand. I, you can get up to the sixth floor museum and kind of stand next to the window and look down as I did yesterday. And you do see the X's pretty clearly where that shot, those shots were allegedly fired. But you told us where the grassy knoll shooters were, were behind this wooden fence. And you stand there, and it's very clear. And I found going to Dealey Plaza that I had way more questions about it after being there in the physical space than I did watching it on TV. I mean, what is it about going to the location? Have you noticed, as you've talked to hundreds of people over the years... Does being in the physical space do that to them as well? Yes. Chris, uh, I'm delighted 
to be with you. I appreciate having the opportunity to visit with you about Dealey Plaza and what that represents historically. Your first comment a minute ago, your your arrival in Dealey Plaza, you sensed that it was smaller than you had expected. Yeah. I hear that comment from people from all over the world. A lot of my clients, I say my my daughter and I are business partners. Without my daughter, there are no JFK tours. She's the brains of the operation. <laughs> but when I get face-to-face with my clients, overwhelmingly they'll say, Robin, it's smaller than I expected. So, Chris, your your immediate reaction is channeling the reaction of people from many nations uh, one out of three of my clients are Australians. Really? I have all, yes, I have almost as many Australians as Americans. Is that why? word of mouth? Yeah, why? Every Australian I've ever met to present a tour to them, they're all very knowledgeable. Hmm. More knowledgeable than Americans. So, Chris, your comment that your Uber driver from Dallas said, really, this is where it happened? Yeah. Okay. Yes. If you're in North Texas and you can easily maneuver to Dealey Plaza, very, very few native North Texans ever think about Dealey Plaza, ever think about President Kennedy's murder here. So... I'm I'm trying to say that's why I believe a lot of my customers are from other places. Mm. I almost never do a tour with someone who is in North Texas. So Indianapolis had used to be called Indiana Place, and there wasn't much going on. And so there is an insecurity in the city about being a destination for people to come and enjoy the city. And we're vibrant and we're is the mentality here in Dallas like this is not what we want to be known for. And maybe that plays a part of it? Or is it just ignorance? (laughs) Today, no. No, we're going to say it's native inherent ignorance and innocence. Two things. Uh, What you just said, Chris, was is Dallas today haunted by the Kennedy murder? The answer is no. Okay. After the Kennedy murder occurred... The rest of the country, the rest of the world, encouraged by the American media apparatus, just associated Kennedy's demise with Dallas, that Dallas as a whole was responsible for Kennedy's death. Hmm. So for a few years, yes, Dallas did uh, live under that burden. Now, today we can look back and know that the city of Dallas had absolutely nothing to do with the Kennedy murder, except it's where it took place. Yeah, I was surprised as I went through the museum to see the, um, and, well, I'll ask your opinion of the museum in a bit, but my coworker the night before we took your tour goes, he's a big JFK conspiracy theorist, uh, he he goes. Do not go. Give them the money. You're supporting the the murderers. Like <laughs> so, he was he was half kidding, half very serious. And I totally get what he what he means because it's in the charter. I understand that they're not to push anything other than the Warren Commission report. And 
they can't help but even like with the magic bullet uh, theory kind of give a nod to going, we know there's some holes in this stuff. But I was surprised in the museum how how many like little panels were talking about the right-wing extremists in the city and how there was a lot of protests going on. And that morning in the paper, there was an ad taken out against Kennedy and his policies. And the it, it, it was meant to kind of give you the feeling that the John Birch Society was, and the right-wing uh, lunatics of Dallas were responsible for the environment that killed John Kennedy, that their influence led Oswald to... To take that, that it, and we see that today. Like we're not we're not going to get into modern politics in this episode, but you do see that with oh, they're on YouTube watching far right videos, and that's how they become mass shooters instead of other reasons like maybe mental illness. Um, so I was surprised to see that Dallas kind of did take a hit in that museum, as if the they had something to do with it. Which the Dallas Police Department had captured Oswald in what two hours or less. I mean they they did. They rolled out 400 police officers trying to protect the president. They did about as good of a job as you possibly could that day, it seemed, preparing for the president. The police, yeah. Yeah, so I was surprised to see Dallas kind of... I mean, do you... when when I don't... I assume you've been through the museum, but why do you think Dallas and that mentality of it was the far-right wingers of Dallas are responsible for the death of Kennedy? Where does that impulse come from? Chris guilt Hmm. initially because the rest of the world blamed Dallas Hmm. a lot of guilt two things eventually helped the city and the region emerge from guilt two things the Dallas Cowboys Eventually, the Cowboys winning led to popularity. Eventually, when the Cowboys become known as America's team, that excitement, that drama, helped bring Dallas out of the first few years after the president's murder of the guilt phase. There's no longer guilt in the citizenry of Dallas. You experienced Uh, At the Sixth Floor Museum, they're still perpetrating the guilt. But one more thing led to Dallas as a community being able to emerge and go beyond guilt. Right. J.R. Ewing. Really? The show Dallas? In 1978, when Dallas premieres and becomes, for years, the most popular show, not only on American television, but around the world, we know that today Dallas reruns are watched more around the world than they are even in the United States. The Dallas Cowboys' success and the popularity of the TV show Dallas eventually transcended in the world's eyes the idea of labeling Dallas. Dallas lost the label of the city of hate Mm. with the emergence of the Cowboys in the late 60s and early 70s. And the television show propelled Dallas beyond everything to the point to where today, when someone from China or Japan or Ireland arrives here, they say, let's go find JR's home. Hmm. Yes. Interesting. Tell me your background. How did you get interested in JFK's uh, murder, as you call it, most, you know, 
to the point that you bought a Lincoln a 1963 Lincoln Continental, restored it to look uh, similar to the president's limo, which had an extra two feet. But uh, how did you get? I mean, would you say that you're obsessed with it? My wife would say that I'm obsessed. Okay. I prefer to use the term passionate, Chris. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. How, how did that happen? On the day of the president's public execution. So, Chris, the word assassination helps us sanitize the moment. Okay. But it was a public execution, regardless of who you want to say is pulling the triggers. I'm in the fourth grade that day. I'm nine years old, and I'm at Austin Elementary School in Grand Prairie, Texas, 12 miles west of Dallas. And that day, all that happened to me was that I was sent home from school, as everybody else was. And for the next five days, I watch adults in my world huddled around a black and white television, watching the events of the aftermath of the president's murder. Now let's morph to the fall of 1973. I'm 19 years old, and I go to watch a movie named Executive Action. And the star of this movie is Burt Lancaster. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming there are members of your generation, Chris, who have heard of Burt Lancaster. He was the Kevin Costner of 60 years ago. Okay. Lancaster, big movie star. And he makes a movie called Executive Action. And in this movie, it is revealed that a high cabal of industry, finance, the military, the intelligence apparatus of our country, and big oil in Dallas wanted the removal of a sitting president and was willing to risk everything to carry that out. Now, that's the plot of the movie Executive Action. I wa- And it was Kennedy that the movie is about. I walked out of that theater. I was 19 years old. And I said to myself, I've been asleep for Mm. 10 years. And from that moment led to me uh, diving deeply into resolving the Kennedy murder. Am I obsessed? You're free to call me obsessed. (laughs) It has been a passionate part of my life. People assume that conspiracy theories happen years later, like the 9-11 conspiracies. There were a small portion of people who kind of believe that right after, but now, 20 years later, it seems to be an industry. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, J. Edgar Hoover, in the hours after Kennedy's murder, seemed to be obsessed by their own audio tapes and notes, and they, they seemed to be scared to death of conspiracies. That's why the Warren Commission was set up. It it was almost, in, in kind of reading back in that period, it seems like it was uh, widely accepted that you'd question the official narrative. That, I, I mean, so to hear a movie being made about it in 1973, I think younger people like myself would go, I can't believe a movie 10, you know, 10 years after was made like that. Because well, there's something you need to know about the movie. Uh, okay. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, go ahead. It's drawing sellout crowds. Right. In the fall of 73. Within two weeks of the movie's release, even though it's breaking box office records, the movie disappears from every theater in America. Uh, really? Who would have the power 
to remove a movie that is making money from theaters? The financial industry. Yes, but it's unusual to remove a movie that is making money. (laughs) That's a fair point. Yeah, what's your opinion on that? The forces that were in control of this country in November of 63 were still in control in the fall of 73. Mm -hmm. And as ugly as it is for some people to consider, the Central Intelligence Agency wielded much more power and influence in the 60s than they were designed to, and they still do today. One quick footnote going back to Kennedy. In the spring of 61, after the Bay of Pigs event, Kennedy famously said, I will splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter them to the winds. Now, everybody at Langley knew the president said that. Mm -hmm. We know what eventually happened to Kennedy. To this day, Kennedy is the only American president who has ever taken on the CIA. Is that a coincidence? No. But no American president ever went as far as Kennedy to disassemble the Central Intelligence Agency. Yeah. I'd say Trump is trying to do it, and you see the whistleblower being a CIA agent in the Ukrainian situation, but he talks a lot. Kennedy had real power. Uh, So you see this movie, and you go, I've been asleep. What are your next few steps in, in wanting to investigate what happened? I start finding books that talk about the Kennedy murder. And there were books questioning the Warren findings as early as the mid-60s. Two particular books. A book was released in 1966, Six Seconds in Dallas. A book was released a few months later, Rush to Judgment. Now, the authors of those two books were two American citizens that rejected the Warren findings. What are the Warren findings? In September of 64, the Warren Commission releases the Warren Report to the public, and in that report, it is explained to anyone who's interested that one man acting alone overthrew the United States government by murdering Kennedy, and this person is a nut and a communist. That's the official explanation. Americans, once they read the Warren findings, millions of Americans rejected the explanation. Why? It's not believable. Mm -hmm. It is not believable. And millions of Americans rejected it and went out on their own to solve the murder. By the mid-60s, 65, 66, a few books are appearing. But Rush to Judgment, author Mark Lane, who is a New York attorney... Rush to Judgment was the first book questioning the Warren findings that went to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. Which indicated there's an audience for listening to a dissent from the official explanation. And a wildfire, a grass fire occurs upon the release of Rush to Judgment, and soon millions of Americans are starting to invest time into resolving what happened because they rejected our government's explanation. 
So let's talk about the Warren findings and the problems with the official explanation. Um, what are some of your key objections to what they found or why, why was the Warren Commission so problematic and rejected by so many? On Saturday, November 23rd and Sunday, November 24th, Lyndon Johnson, the new president and the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, have 11 phone conversations on Saturday and Sunday. All these conversations are recorded. Johnson shows up in the Oval Office on Saturday the 23rd and starts using Kennedy's recording equipment. Kennedy was the first president to record his conversations. And on Saturday the 23rd, Johnson turns on Kennedy's recording equipment, and here he goes. Mm -hmm. And today, all those phone conversations are in the... LBJ Library in Austin, and through the Freedom of Information Act, scholars and academics can listen to those conversations. I have listened to those conversations. And in those conversations, Hoover is, this is on Saturday the 23rd, Hoover is... The day after Kennedy is... The day after Kennedy's murder, Hoover is telling Johnson, it is Oswald, he had no assistance, he did it all by himself. At the moment Hoover is saying this to Johnson, Oswald is alive. Now, he's saying this less than 20 hours after the president's murder. Amazing that the FBI director has solved the crime of the century all by himself without leaving Washington. But on Saturday, Hoover is telling Johnson, it is Oswald, no one assisted him. There's, there's a part of it where Johnson is eager to get the answers that he wants, and Hoover is eager to give him those answers. And they are very, um, not just the Warren Commission, and we'll talk about Jerry Ford being a problem too, because I've been surprised in learning about him carrying Hoover's water, but there, there seems to be on the FBI's report, uh, part, um, you know, Dallas police catch Oswald. They do all this police work. The Johnson and everybody in Washington doesn't think they're doing a good job, so they send down the FBI. The FBI is is on the scene almost immediately, and they figure out what happened, like you said, within almost a day, and they never seem to want to pursue any other answers to the point that when the Warren Commission, they rushed a report to the Warren Commission trying to almost, it seemed like, set the the data. The members of the Warren Commission all uh, were outraged by the fact that uh, every detail in it had already been leaked, including the three shots. And the behavior of the FBI was so suspicious that Bill Russell, the, the famed senator, and other members of the Warren Commission were weirded out by the FBI's attempt to really set the official story within hours and never look into anything else. Why do you think that is? Chris, every day we can turn on the television and hear the term mentioned, the establishment. Mm-hmm. Who is the establishment? Well, we all have a vague idea of who the establishment is. Right. Vaguely, it's industry, it's finance, it's the military, it's arms manufacturers. 
it's big oil. Right. The establishment existed 60 years ago. It is the establishment that wants Kennedy removed. They end up being successful. And it is the establishment that is in charge of investigating the murder. Right. The rooster, the hen house, that old explanation. Who's guarding the hen house? Right. But, Chris, once again, anything I ever say to people, I say, don't believe a word I'm saying. I'm trying to compel people to dig deeper on their own. But you are interested in what I believe or we wouldn't be talking the, the the entities that we will refer to as the establishment, they want Kennedy out. There's a number of reasons. The paramount reason is he is withdrawing from Vietnam. But the people who want him removed are the people who are left in control of our government and in control of establishing the narrative of what happened. Right. That is beyond a conflict of interest. Hoover and Johnson are two of many beneficiaries of Kennedy's murder. But it is Hoover and Johnson who are in complete control of the aftermath. Hoover and Johnson were not planning Kennedy's removal, but they are in complete control of the aftermath. And the aftermath is much more complicated and harder to control than murdering a man riding in an open car. Ultimately, how hard is it to kill someone who's riding in an open car? But what is complicated is making sure afterwards the guilty parties remain innocent and someone who is not guilty is blamed for the event. That is more difficult and more complicated. Yeah, even to the point that... um you know, Kennedy fired Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, and one of the people fired was, uh, and you may know his name, but the brother of the Dallas mayor at the time. <laughs> you start to look at all these little threads of coincidences and you go, okay, well, it's not hard to make the leap that you're in Johnson's state, where Johnson, Lyndon Johnson has had control of that state for at least a decade or more. Uh, has built his own machine, controls a lot of the media. You're in Dallas, a city he knows well. The the uh, the mayor is a friend. Like you start to look at all these little threads, and you go, "Okay, I see why people question this." And none of what I've said is it, you can go listen to it, and it's provable just by hearing their tone. So let's maybe start at the beginning of why talk about the day, and then go to the aftermath. Why would someone in the establishment, because there's various theories, the two predominant ones that seem to be in terms of alternate theories, you've got the lone gunman theory, which is the, what the government's position is. You've got the Soviets held, uh, helped Oswald. He went to Mexico uh, a month before, a couple months in September of 63, met at the Mexican embassy with the Soviets. He had lived in Soviet Russia, had a Soviet wife. He comes back, then he kills Kennedy, uh, which a lot of his activities in Mexico were not investigated by the FBI or the CIA, weirdly. Like, you'd think if, 
if a 24-year-old now went and met with ISIS in Syria and came back and then shot the president, you'd think they'd look into it, and they never did in 63 and 64. Uh, that's the second one. And then there is the establishment theory, which I'll kind of... So, which is the there was an internal coup in the United States, which why would Lyndon Johnson, uh, Hoover... Alan Dulles of the CIA, formerly of the CIA at, the, at this point, bankers, people that are Americans, that live in the United States, why would they want to get rid of John Kennedy? Kennedy is unique in the American political structure. In, in our system, most politicians come from humble beginnings. And many of our elected officials, as they ascend through the corridors of power, someone along the way helps that elected official. The people helping the politicians are people with money and power and influence. Now, Mm -hmm. we generally don't think about that, but that is a fact, and no one can argue or debate the fact that normally... Somewhere along a politician's path has money and power to help him ascend. The reason Kennedy is unique, Joseph P. Kennedy was one of the wealthiest men in America. And from the time John F. Kennedy first ran for Congress, 1946, until he is elected to the presidency. It is his father's money and power and influence that propels him eventually to the presidency. This is unique. Normally, politicians that ascend that far have someone behind them with money and power, and those politicians eventually are subject to those persons' wishes and desires. Kennedy reaches the presidency, and he is not owned. His thoughts, his motives are not motivated or controlled by anyone in the establishment. But let me push back on that, because isn't Kennedy the establishment? Isn't Joseph Kennedy the establishment at that point? What? Why is he different than a Dulles, a Hoover, a Johnson at that point? Or, or the you're, people that they're they're subservient to. You're describing Dulles and Hoover, Alan Dulles, a career government employee who is the director of the CIA when Kennedy is elected president. You're talking about uh, Hoover. You're talking about John Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, who when Kennedy is elected in '60. Hoover has been the director of the FBI since 1924. Mm. You're talking about two men who have been firmly embedded in the government, in the establishment structure of our country for many years when Kennedy is elected president. You're correct today, Chris. Americans, my generation, your generation, Think of the Kennedy family. Think of John F. Kennedy's family as the establishment, as the perfect example of the establishment. What I'm saying is the establishment that exists today, 
industry, finance, big oil, the military, our intelligence apparatus. The establishment of today existed 60 years ago, but the faces have changed. Mm -hmm. None of the people that wanted Kennedy removed are alive today. But the entities that those people represented, those entities are still a tremendous force to be reckoned with. What I'm saying is, as Kennedy runs for Congress and then the Senate and eventually the presidency, no one in this political establishment in Washington assists him. It is his, pow- it is his family's power and money and influence. Yes, we look at the Kennedys at the, as the establishment, and today that might be a true statement. But in the 60 presidential election, the establishment in Washington, Hoover, we've been describing the director of the FBI, Hoover. We've been describing the director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. Let's use those two names as representing this larger cabal of the establishment. The establishment in 1960 is backing Nixon. And the establishment knows that Nixon is going to win. They know he is. But the junior senator from Massachusetts wins in the closest election in American political history. So from the moment that Kennedy is elected until three months later when he is inaugurated, as crazy as it may sound today, he is resented and he is disliked and he is looked at as the outsider compared to the vice president, Richard Nixon. Right, who was uh, Tricky Dick Nixon. I mean, he's a fascinating American. Uh, to, to illustrate those points, I'm, I'm sure the Roman Catholicism of Kennedy, still our only Roman Catholic president, uh, played a difference compared to wasps like the Bush family. You may touch on the Bush family and their history briefly, because I think they're illustrative of what established power at the time looked like. And, you know, we're sitting outside of Bush's... Uh, library, and you're looking at HW, and then you're looking at Prescott, and you look you look at their connection to the banking industry and setting up the CIA. You look at some of this, and you go, "Okay, well, that's established power." I mean, is that a fair? Is the Bush family maybe a good guide in people's mind, in the listeners' mind, for that? Yes, the the Bush family, the Bush dynasty, the the Bush political dynasty is on our minds. Here we are outside the front door of the Bush Library in Dallas. I believe George Walker Bush, the 43rd president, is probably one of the kindest human beings to ever be elected president. How did he get there? Because that name was magic and was gold when he ran. Why? Chris, I bet... Within your generation, I bet there's not 10% of your generation who knows the name of George W. Bush's grandfather. Right. Now, you readily just identified him as Prescott Bush. Who is Prescott Bush? Well, in the 1940s and the 1950s, he was a United States senator from Connecticut. Very powerful and influential man. He was the father of... Of George Herbert Walker Bush. 
the Bush family and the Bush's influence, especially in the eastern United States, goes back generations. If you'll allow me, Chris, for just a moment to divert to another subject. Please. In the world of golf, if you're one of the best... For, an- for our non-Texas listeners, he meant golf. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. It came out golf. But the term, <laughs> the word G-O-L-F is what I'm referring to. I'm sorry. You may, and of- you may hear people in the background and wind and stuff because we're sitting on a park bench. So I apologize to the listener, but it, you may pick it uh, up. A but- very relaxed atmosphere we're in, Chris. Yeah, so in the world golf. of uh, In the world of G-O-L-F. If you are one of the best amateur golfers in America, you will eventually compete against the best amateur golfers in England and Ireland. And that competition, which is held biannually, is called the Walker Cup Matches. Hmm. And no one, I bet not 1% of America connects the Walker Cup amateur golf matches between the United States and Great Britain as being connected to the the Bush political dynasty. Right. But in fact, George Herbert Walker Bush, our 41st president, his mother was Dorothy, and her maiden name was Dorothy Walker. So George Herbert Walker Bush's Maternal grandfather was George Herbert Walker, an influential American who devoted a lot of time and energy and money into creating a series of golf competitions, G-O-L-F, between the United States and Great Britain. And today, those matches are called the Walker Cup matches. I'm, I'm spending time talking about that explaining that George Herbert Walker Bush had a maternal grandfather named George Herbert Walker to explain that the family through 4041's maternal side and paternal side are very, very well-established families in the northeastern United States. That's what I'm trying to say. So, yes, today we can think of the Bush family as part of the establishment, yes. Prescott Bush had a role in setting up, and I, I'm. I, let me just say this, and then you debunk whatever I say. There is a strain of the Kennedy conspiracy that says that Prescott Walker, uh, Prescott Bush, the senator, helped set up what is now the CIA as senator. His son was in the CIA and a CIA asset at the time of the Kennedy assassination. Was on a ship outside of Cuba. And he is the one who imported Cubans to assist Lee Harvey Oswald and basically Herbert Walker Bush is the ringleader of the Kennedy murderers and he was present that day and uh, that was all done as as a way to you have him do this thing and so now he can't talk about it and they the quote unquote establishment owns HW and and he goes on to be president and CIA director as a reward what stock do you put into any of that wing of the Kennedy assassination anyone today who wants to connect George Herbert Walker Bush president 41 to the Kennedy murder they're only Material evidence is a photograph that exists 
of a man standing in Dealey Plaza as the Kennedy motorcade passes through. People who believe that George Herbert Walker Bush was involved in the Kennedy murder will point to this photograph, you can find it on the internet, and say there he is. George H.W. many years was known as the only American who couldn't remember where he was on November 22, 1963. I do not know why the 41st president had trouble remembering where he was, but the photograph in question... I have studied it for years. This is just my opinion. That is not George Herbert Walker Bush in the photograph. And I do, I do not believe George Herbert Walker Bush was involved in the planning or the removal of John F. Kennedy. But, yes, in the 1950s and the 1960s, George Herbert Walker Bush, although he is a businessman and oil man by profession... He would occasionally do work for our government. And so you could say that George Herbert Walker Bush was a contract agent of the CIA. What's a contract agent? If you're a contract agent for the CIA, that doesn't mean that you show up every day at Langley, Virginia with a briefcase. It means that occasionally Americans, usually Americans with influence, are asked to do something for their country. And if you do, you would be a contract agent of the CIA. George Herbert Walker Bush was that. And as you know, I'm impressed that you knew that, eventually he served as director of the CIA. Youngest one in history. Yes. I do not believe George Herbert Walker Bush was involved in the Kennedy murder. You wanted my opinion. I, it took me five minutes that's okay. to give you the opinion, Chris. No, I think it's uh, it's, it's relevant because it's uh, when he passed away recently, it was all over kind of the libertarian social media world of let's not, the Kennedy's killer, let's not honor him. Uh, so... Let's go back to Kennedy and his role as president. Maybe the best place to start is actually the Cold War. Because I think understanding the Cold War and the military-industrial complex, as Dwight Eisenhower labeled it, and post-World War II business and, and, uh, and, cor- and companies, basically, that served during World War II, supplying arms and all that, I think that may be the best place to start. Can you kind of talk about why was Dwight Eisenhower complicit but also concerned about what was called the military-industrial complex at that time? That, that's a good subject to uh, discuss connecting to, uh, to the Kennedy murder. When the United States entered World War II, now remember, Churchill has been holding off the Nazis all by himself for two years. And he can't get Franklin Roosevelt to commit to getting involved. More Well, he can't get the American people to get involved. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt sends, does some shady stuff to supply military weapons, but he wants to get in. So just to clarify your point, I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, <laughs> to, to disagree, Roosevelt does not want okay. in. Okay. Now, we can agree to disagree. Okay. Roosevelt does not want in. December the 7th drags him in. Okay. But once he's in, now Churchill has a needed partner. Okay. On December the 7th, 1941, 
America has 180,000 people in uniform, and we are ill-equipped to fight a war. And we have no arms manufacturers, and we have no spies. But soon after December the 7th, I'm actually going to get to your point. No, unfold the history. Soon after December the 7th, Roosevelt identifies an army general named William Donovan, and he tasked William Donovan with establishing a network of spies. We need intelligence. We don't have that. William Donovan is sometimes known as Wild Bill Donovan, and there are books written about Donovan's life. He's an American hero. Donovan soon soon approaches a Wall Street lawyer named Alan Dulles. The families are familiar. The Donovan family, the Dulles family are friends. Donovan, the Army General, recruits the the Wall Street lawyer, Alan Dulles, into an agency that Donovan creates called the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, becomes our spy network in World War II. Eventually, Donovan sends Alan Dulles to Europe, and Dulles literally has control over all of our intelligence apparatus in Europe. Dulles is stationed in Switzerland. One of Dulles's chief deputies is a young man named Ed Lansdale, who will yet later be heavily involved in the Kennedy murder. Dulles got his start in intelligence work from Wild Bill Donovan. At the conclusion of World War II, so it has a good ending. Okay. The good guys win. And Alan Dulles comes home from World War II a war hero. In 1947, Harry Truman created the Central Intelligence Agency. In that year of 47, Truman is signing a document called the National Security Act. And within this document, Truman is creating three entities that didn't exist before. Truman creates from signing this document the Joint Chiefs of Staff which will be a representative of each branch of our military reporting directly to a sitting president. The Office of Secretary of Defense is created from this document that Truman signs. And an agency that does not exist is created. The Central Intelligence Agency is created from Truman signing this document. And the elements left over from the OSS... Wild Bill Donovan's agency from World War II, those assets morph into the Central Intelligence Agency. And here's what Truman wants the Central Intelligence Agency to be. No more or no less than an information-gathering arm that would report directly to the president. The FBI or our domestic cops... Truman wants the CIA to be our international cops. And that's all he wants is for them to be an information-gathering arm for a sitting president. And soon, the CIA grows well beyond the bounds of what Truman intended. 
That's how we end up in 1953 when Eisenhower ascends to the presidency. He nominates Alan Dulles to be the director of central intelligence. And Eisenhower nominates Alan Dulles' older brother, John Foster Dulles, to be his secretary of state. And so through the Eisenhower presidency, we have these two Dulles brothers wielding great power and influence through those years. And in the 50s, in the Eisenhower administration, it is the Dulles brothers that dictate and carry out U.S. foreign policy with Eisenhower's blessing. In Eisenhower's years, the Dulles brothers create the industries that we know today as the military-industrial industries that build weapons perpetually for our military. Yeah. That happens in the Eisenhower years. So a minute ago, you made a reference to Eisenhower coining the phrase, the military-industrial complex. And I appreciate the fact, Chris, that you know that that phrase comes from Eisenhower. So you and I know, and we want our audience to know, that as Eisenhower is leaving office and relinquishing the power to Kennedy, he has a a farewell address from the Oval Office, and he warns the public... And he warns his successor, John F. Kennedy, of the growing power and influence of the military-industrial complex. Who is Eisenhower referring to with that phrase? We know it's industry, it's finance, it's big oil, it's the military, it's our intelligence apparatus. That's who Eisenhower is referring to. I'm going to pause, Chris. Okay. Yeah, it's starting to rain, but if it, I'm not getting wet, really. Oh, I'm fine. I just wanted to stop talking and give you a chance. No, 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 no. Talk. Keep going. That, okay. They hear enough of me. I think. Oh, okay. I think. I think it's good for you to lay out your your. Like, this is what a, I have this come is, to know. Right. This is catnip for libertarians. I promise, because this is the important part of it. It's you lure people in with the Kennedy stuff, and then they get hit with Eisenhower's farewell speech. Um, I, I just, I think this is, so yeah, keep going. You're fine. Eisenhower in his presidency observes that this new agency, the central intelligence agency is growing well beyond what Truman intended for them to be. Chris, when your grandparents and great grandparents picked up a newspaper in the 1950s, and the early 60s, and read that a South American dictator had been assassinated, or that a new government had been installed in the Philippines. Iran. Or Iran. Yeah. That's Alan Dulles at the CIA controlling world events. That's how far Dulles has taken the CIA. He is actually influencing world events, and Eisenhower allows it to happen. What part does, and try to hold that up there. Yeah, there you go. I know it's hard to hold the mic for too long, but what part does Nixon play in a lot of this? Because he's vice president at the time, and I know there are some wings of the conspiracy assassination that think Nixon was the guy that did it, and I may have you touch on that, but... What part does Nixon kind of play in the foreign policy wing 
uh, of the 50s. Few people know that Nixon is in the Navy in World War II and serves in the Pacific, just as John Fitzgerald Kennedy serves in the Pacific in the Navy. They both come back home and they both seek political office. The difference between Nixon and Kennedy. Kennedy's father is one of the most wealthy Americans. Richard Nixon's family is practically in poverty. Nixon and Kennedy are four years apart in age. Nixon is four years older than Kennedy. But they both run for Congress in 1946. They both enter national politics in the same fall, 1946. Nixon is elected as a congressman from California in a district just southeast of Los Angeles. Kennedy is elected from Boston. And they both arrive in the halls of Congress on the exact same day. And there is a group picture taken that day of all the incoming congressmen from the 46th election. These are newcomers. These are not congressmen that have already been there. These are all newly elected for the first time. And Nixon and Kennedy are both in that photograph. You can find it on the Internet. But Kennedy and Nixon literally arrive in Washington on the same day. (laughs) In the 50s, they both run for the Senate, and they're both elected to the Senate. And in 1960, they both run for president. So Kennedy and Nixon's paths go all the way back to 1946 as far as them knowing each other. knowing They know each other very well by the time they're running for president. Hilariously, Nixon came to Dallas the day before Kennedy was assassinated because he was he was working the ground for 64. And he goes, oh, it's just a business trip. It's totally coincidental, which if you've ever read The Greatest Comeback by Pat Buchanan about the 68 campaign and what Nixon was up to, nothing is coincidental. Nixon was a madman. But yeah, so he seemed to be a little obsessed with him. So you continue on. So they, they run... For President Kennedy ends up getting elected. Kennedy is elected. It's the most narrow victory margin in American presidential history. A hundred thousand votes separate the two candidates. Now, in the Electoral College, Kennedy won several more states, but in the actual vote of the individual Americans, it was a hundred thousand votes. Okay. Nixon withdraws temporarily, but by 1962, he runs for governor of California and is defeated. Nixon's star falls so far that he goes from almost ascending to the presidency in 60. By two years later, he cannot be elected governor of California. And it is at that moment that Nixon makes the famous statement, You will never have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Okay, so Chris, I don't look at at Nixon in as dark a fashion as maybe other people do. He was was not a pillar of virtue, virtue. (laughs) but I, I don't see him as dark as many people do. However, you're right, he eventually resurrects himself. On the subject of Nixon being in Dallas the third week of November in 63... 
At that time, Nixon was the legal counsel for PepsiCo, mm. the parent company of Pepsi. He is their legal counsel. There is a bottler's convention in Dallas that week, and Nixon is here representing PepsiCo at the bottler's convention. On the morning of November 22nd, Richard Nixon got on an airplane at Love Field and left Dallas an hour and a half before Air Force One arrived from Fort Worth. So Nixon and Kennedy were not on the ground at the same time, but in fact, Nixon was in Dallas, Texas, November 22nd. But he is here on business. And he had not begun resurrecting his political career in the fall of 63. He's earning a living being legal counsel for the PepsiCo company. So, Nixon. Eventually, he does resurrect his political life. And in 68, he is the Demo- I'm sorry, he is the Republican nominee. Now, when Nixon becomes the Republican nominee in 68, that is not unexpected. Within a year or two, he, he had put himself in a strong position to be the Republican candidate. What is turbulent in 68 is the Democratic situation. Lyndon Johnson ascended to the presidency, and he has a mandate Johnson has a mandate from the people who removed Kennedy that we're going to have a ground war in Southeast Asia. So the reason that Johnson ascends to the presidency is what destroys his presidency. Now, by 1968, there's dozens of American boys perishing every week in Vietnam. And the American public sees this on CBS, ABC, and NBC nightly news programs. Because of the carnage of Vietnam, Johnson is so unpopular that he knows he could never be elected to president again. Didn't he decide there was some decisive battle or some like big failure or there was something in Vietnam that happened and that was the day he knew... I'm not going to be able to run, and he announces his resignation that day or the day next day? or The one particular event in Vietnam, I will not connect to Johnson's decision to not run, but it is a culmination of defeat after defeat after defeat that leads Johnson in March of 68 to go on live television, and we've all seen him say this. In this televised comment he makes from the Oval Office, he says, I will not seek nor will I accept my party's nomination to run for president. Now, he's not humble. The reason he is saying I will not seek the nomination is because he has become incredibly unpopular. Yeah. He's not going to run, so who is going to run? Well, there's, there's, several pe- there's several Democrats that want to be president in 1968. Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, a, man named, a senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy, and the 45-year-old brother of John F. Kennedy, 
Robert Francis Kennedy wants to be President of the United States. Where is Bobby Kennedy in 1968? He is a senator from New York, but everywhere he goes, he carries the shadow of his brother with him. He was his. He was JFK's attorney general, and he was the lightning rod. He was the one that JFK pissed off the mob, and we'll talk about the mob by appointing Robert Kennedy. Uh, this book that I'm reading said that while JFK didn't like conflict, Robert seemed to seek it out, and he hated Hoover. He hated Johnson. He hated almost everybody in Washington. He hated the mafia, and he went after all of them. He was close to to uh, trying to impeach Lyndon Johnson. He didn't want Lyndon Johnson to be the vice president, basically said, God forbid anything happened to my brother because of him. So Kennedy is a very scary proposition because he's going to win. I know something about Kennedy because uh, he gave the speech of Martin uh, the night Martin Luther King was assassinated in Indianapolis. Uh, and it's one of the greatest speeches ever. If you've never listened to it, go and listen to it. And it's one of the reasons Indianapolis is one of the few major cities that didn't just immediately light into flames and rioting that night because he kept everyone calm. Uh, but the Indiana primary was very instrumental for Kennedy, uh, and he had a very good shot and probably would have gone on to be president in 68. And what happened to Bobby Kennedy in 1968? Chris, it's interesting to listen to your reflections of Bobby Kennedy making that speech in Indianapolis. That's your history, mm-hmm. and you know about that, and, and that's interesting to hear about. Yes, on the night of King's murder, Bobby Kennedy has arrived in Indianapolis and from the airport makes that speech you're referring to. Okay, by June of 68, Kennedy is the front runner. And an important event occurs on June the 4th, 1968. The state of California votes for the Democratic primary for president. Kennedy wins, and he has poured every ounce of energy he has in his body and his soul into that, and he wins. And his campaign headquarters are at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And we've all seen Bobby Kennedy's acceptance speech from June the 4th, 1968, in a ballroom at the Ambassador Hotel, where he says, now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. And in a few weeks, the Democrats will have their convention in Chicago, and Bobby Kennedy was going to be nominated to be his party's candidate to run for president. But we know that that moment is interrupted by a Jordanian immigrant named Sirhan Sirhan. Now, without elaborating on how Kennedy is murdered, we do have to deal with this fact, Chris. In American political history, only once has a sitting U.S. senator been gunned down in public. Hmm. Is it a coincidence? Could it possibly be a coincidence that the only time in our country's history that a senator is gunned down, that it's the brother of John F. Kennedy? And I say that it is more of a stretch to say that is a coincidence than to embrace 
common sense and say, no, right. it cannot be a coincidence that only one time did someone want to murder a senator and carry it out. Okay, so that brings us to 1968 and why the Democratic Party's nominee was Hubert Humphrey instead of Robert Francis Kennedy. And Nixon defeated Hubert Humphrey in the November election. By the way, one thing that gets Nixon, even though Nixon is establishment, one thing that gets Nixon crossways with the Central Intelligence Agency in his presidency is that he almost immediately, once he's in the Oval Office, calls Langley and says, bring over everything you've got on the Kennedy murder. Hmm. And there are some people who believe that the event that eventually brings Nixon down, which we know today as Watergate, that that was a CIA-motivated and executed event to get rid of Nixon because he keeps saying, I want all the Kennedy files. Now, is that true? I can't prove that. Do the Kennedy files still exist at the CIA? There is a Kennedy department really? at the CIA. If there is a piece of paper, if there is a document that exists today that says... Elements of the CIA orchestrated the removal of John F. Kennedy. If that document exists, it will never be released to the public. I do not believe that document exists. But if you wish, I will tell you about the phone call from the CIA that put Instruments in motion to remove John F. Kennedy. Yeah, so let's go to the day in Dallas, which will connect. I, I'm going to ask about the connection between Watergate and the three tramps, uh, which was fascinating because I'd never heard that. Um, so Kennedy in his presidency after, just to kind of shorten this and get us to the, the day in Dallas, Kennedy threatens to break the CIA and scatter them to the winds. He has the Bay of Pigs, which he blames the Bay of Pigs fiasco, which he blames on Alan Dulles, fires Alan Dulles and the brother of the mayor of Dallas, who's serving at the time of his assassination. General Charles Cabell. Thank you. Uh, Fires those guys. Uh, Then the Cuban Missile Crisis takes place, and he's so disturbed by how close the United States and the Soviet Russia were to starting a nuclear war that he just, he can't, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he just can't, he can't, uh, in the nuclear, the new nuclear age, he doesn't want to be the president that starts the nuclear war and wants to start decreasing American aggression and starting with the Central Intelligence Agency, which has overthrown several governments. And... He, he at all, while at the same time, also wants to audit and shut down the Federal Reserve, which probably plays a part. So he, he's a very threatening person to the established power. And so who do you think made the decision 
or who do you think was instrumental in those upper echelons in deciding that the president would be assassinated, if that is what you, in fact, believe? Chris, you've you've teed it up for me. <laughs> Thank you. I know enough to be dangerous. You know the you know facts. I, I, I appreciate your knowledge, Chris, especially for your age. I want your audience to to hear this clearly. Today, anyone in the liberal establishment will speak glowingly, glowingly of President Kennedy. Make no mistake. Kennedy was a pragmatist. Kennedy starts administering as a president as a conservative. He increased the defense spending budget. He cut taxes. He famously said, a rising tide lifts all boats. Kennedy is administering with conservative thinking and conservative policies. So when you hear a liberal or a Democrat today embrace the memory of John F. Kennedy, they would certainly not embrace what his policies were. Okay. Everything you just said, Chris, as far as Kennedy getting to the moment of the fall of 63 is correct. He has angered the establishment around him because of his decisions pertaining to the Bay of Pigs, April of 61, and the Cuban Missile Crisis, October of 62. And you're right. Kennedy daily agonizes over how close we came to nuclear annihilation in October of 62. And he is determined to do everything in his power to make sure that never happens again. But he also has this growing concern that we keep sending more and more military personnel to Southeast Asia. And he knows why this is taking place, and he believes it will be a huge strategical mistake if we get into a ground war in South Vietnam. So McNamara puts together a report, the Secretary of Defense, later on as they're losing the war to figure out what happened. And in the Pentagon Papers, as they're now called, uh, Kennedy basically, basically says at one point when he's president, South Vietnam is a mistake. We're just going to throw body after body. We're never going to win it. It's going to be basically a quagmire. But I got to get elected in 64. So we got to stay in. But he clearly knows, like, he clearly knows that Vietnam is not winnable as early as 61. I mean, so it's, so Vietnam is, in your opinion, kind of the, the catalyst because they, the, the people behind the military industrial complexes, we'll call them, that's a lot of money. And so does that where the that where the Fed comes into it as well? The the central bankers, basically, we call it the Fed, but it's the Federal Reserve is basically made up of the banks of the United States started the Federal Reserve. And it's basically it's a cabal of bankers uh, and not anything to do with you as a taxpayer or your your government. But that's go read G. Edward Griffin's book if you want to know more about that uh, creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, so. Vietnam, in your mind, is kind of the the reason that they assassinate Kennedy's because he's trying to get out of Vietnam. I believe Vietnam is the overarching reason uh, 
that the conspirators move past their fail-safe point. The plans to remove Kennedy start taking shape at the Pentagon and the CIA in June of 63. Why June of 63? It is in that month that Kennedy makes the decision that he will make a political pilgrimage to Texas in the fall. Okay. And from the moment Kennedy makes the decision that he will come to Texas in the fall of 63, that's when plans start being formulated. Okay. Your question, Chris, is Vietnam the reason? Vietnam is the overarching reason, but these other things you and I have been discussing, the Federal Reserve Bank, the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, these other events are what have put Kennedy on a collision course. But all through Kennedy's presidency, the establishment intends to have a ground war that will require the use of mass conventional military weapons, conventional World War II type weapons. And Kennedy, in his less than three years as president, he sees the buildup of our presence in Vietnam go from Inauguration Day 61 of a few hundred Americans to by the summer of 63, there's 17,000 Americans in South Vietnam. Kennedy is not oblivious to this. Kennedy knows where we're headed. He knows that everybody around him, all these admirals and generals and civilians that are his advisors, they're all saying the same thing in lockstep. We can't let the communists of North Vietnam overrun the Republic of South Vietnam. Who is the government of South Vietnam? It is the DM brothers. Who are the DM brothers? They were put in power by Alan Dulles, and they are puppets of the United States government, and the South Vietnamese people know that, and they hate the DM brothers because of that. The reason Kennedy thinks it will be a huge mistake to get into a military conflict in South Vietnam is because he knows the Vietnamese people resent the Americans' presence and hate the Americans' presence. And he thinks eventually that will be something that we can't overcome. The Federal Reserve Bank, Chris, we've brought it up twice. In June of 63... Kennedy signs an executive order. Look it up on the Internet. Assume I'm making this up. So fact check me and look up on the Internet. Executive order 11110. And you will see that in that executive order, Kennedy intends to defang the Federal Reserve. He wants to take our monetary uh, policy policy back to gold. He wants to go from paper to the gold standard. Modern monetary theory back to the gold standard. Yes. And everything he says in this executive order 11110 is an attempt, his attempt, to take power from the Federal Reserve and put the power in the government, in the Treasury Department, 
And this is the document that puts him on a collision course with a new enemy, the Federal Reserve Bank. And just like Vietnam, just just like the CIA, no president since Kennedy has taken on the CIA, no president has ever decided to take on the Federal Reserve Bank ever again. Okay. By the fall of 63, the president has many powerful enemies. Lee Oswald's name is not on the list of the enemies the president has acquired. (laughs) Okay. He plans this trip to Texas. Chris, you have said, is it Vietnam that leads to his death? Yes, but only combined, only with his decision on Vietnam put on top of all these other decisions he's making. Kennedy is surrounded by people in uniforms telling him we have to stop the North Vietnamese communist no matter how many lives, no matter how much blood is lost. But Kennedy wants to seek the counsel of someone else in regards to Vietnam. And in the summer of 63, Kennedy summons Dwight Eisenhower and Douglas MacArthur to the White House. And the sole purpose of his visit with these two old generals from World War II is to get their ideas and their thoughts about us escalating our footprint in South Vietnam. And here is what Eisenhower and MacArthur tell Kennedy in that summer. Don't escalate. Do not get into a ground war in South Vietnam. It's jungle. We have never fought a war like this. You will not see the enemy and there will be no end to it. That is their warning to Kennedy in the summer of 63. And here's here's where our historians fail us greatly, Chris. You can turn on the History Channel today or the Discovery Channel today, and there might be a documentary you can watch on either Kennedy or Vietnam. And in those documentaries that we watch today, you will see well-regarded, highly esteemed historians, presidential scholars, look into the camera and say, we'll never know if Kennedy was going to escalate in Vietnam because he died. We'll never know. Well, this is criminal. Those historians that are saying that today, they know that's a lie. Because those historians know that on October the 11th, 1963, Kennedy signs an executive order. And his executive order from that day is known as NSAM 263. When an executive order has to do with military involvement, it's known as an NSAM, National Security Action Memorandum. Kennedy signs NSAM 263 on October the 11th. What is in Kennedy's document? It's there for us to look at today if we wish to. 
the American public did not know about 263 50 years ago. Today we know about it. It did exist. The president signed it. In that document, Kennedy is stating that it is becoming the policy of his administration and thus the policy of the United States government that we are withdrawing our presence from South Vietnam, and the document states that by December of 65, every American will be withdrawn. Chris, if you will allow me to continue on that subject for just another moment, you're being very patient with me. Let's leave Kennedy signing NSAM 263 on October the 11th, and let's go on past November 22nd, to Tuesday, November 26th. The 26th of November is the day after Kennedy's funeral. And on the 26th of November, Lyndon Johnson meeting in the Oval Office with the admirals and generals who five days earlier had been advising Kennedy. In that meeting on that day, the 26th, Johnson signs NSAM 273. And Johnson's document overrides Kennedy's document of October 11th. And presidential historians today know this and never talk about it. Why? I would like to know why. But what is in Johnson's document? Johnson's document that he signs on November 26th is the beginning of the chapter of our country's history known as the Vietnam War. In Johnson's document, he is giving presidential authority to our military to begin overt action against the North Vietnamese. And Chris, you probably already know this, but I want your audience to know this. The results of Johnson's document on November 26th are this. Between 1964 and 1975, 10 million Americans are airlifted to South Vietnam. Nobody thinks about that today. Few Americans even know it or want to consider it. But look it up. Fact check me in case I'm making this up. In that 11-year period, 10 million Americans are airlifted to the peninsula of Vietnam. Now, we do not, we cannot calculate of those 10 million Americans, the parents, the aunts, the uncles, the brothers, the sisters, the wives. But we, but we can calculate that 10 million military personnel are airlifted. There's some more things we know. In 1959, Bell Helicopter is about to file for bankruptcy because nobody is buying helicopters in 1959. But we know that between 1964 and 1975, Bell Helicopter produced 20,000 Huey helicopters. And in that 11-year period, Bell Helicopter experienced their greatest growth and the greatest profits in the history of their company. I'm using Bell Helicopter as a microcosm of the military-industrial state. Right. There's more things we know. Almost 59,000 Americans perished in Vietnam and were, were returned home in coffins. 
we cannot calculate how many Americans were directly affected by Johnson's document on November 26th. But remember, Johnson doesn't sign that document unless November 22nd happened. Right. So, Chris, I'm going to pause for a minute. You got a, you got a very annoying flight. You've done a great, great job. And if you want to stand up and, uh, you know, just stretch your legs a little bit, I understand. Uh, th- this bench is not the most comfortable. I'll tell I, I think, uh, you know, just going through the Bush Museum and uh, walking through there, you know, it's kind of cool to see the bullhorn and some of the artifacts and some of the things from 9-11, like his speeches and documents that he signed and pens he signed it with. And it's neat to see, like, the stuff that was uh, memorable at those times. But you get to the to the Iraq part. <laughs> and you, if you're an informed person or you live through that period or you remember the debates leading up to Iraq, if you if you didn't know anything... And all you did was, uh, you knew nothing about Iraq, you knew nothing about Afghanistan or 9-11, you'd look at George W. Bush's presidency and the wars that followed 9-11, and you'd think, wow, democracy really flourished under the Bush administration. Like, the, the driving message of the foreign policy piece of this museum is what George Bush wants you to know about his presidency. The good parts. You know, all these kids can read because of No Child Left Behind. You know, these presidential museums or or the Sixth Floor Museum or anything that is uh, basically a government-run uh, museum, it's always what they want you to know, and it's the part that is most beneficial to them. And once documents get released, then it shades in a lot of stuff. So you, you asked why. And I think a lot of it is because this is the piece that we fought in Vietnam because we were trying to prevent dominoes from falling. The domino theory that uh, you had all of these countries who needed democracy, needed freedom. They were under the tyranny of communist regimes, and we were going to stop them. And the reality is they turned to communism because they didn't want Western colonialism (laughs) <laughs> and what eventually became neocolonialism with with uh, we're just going to come in, get a bunch of loans, strip you your resources. You're going to pay us these loans. We're going to take your resources and you get debt in return. Like uh, th- that part is left out. That's like secret knowledge that conspiracy theorists think. So like a lot of this stuff that you're talking about with Vietnam now if you watch Ken Burns' documentary on Vietnam, I recommend all nine parts. It's really well done, and it doesn't hide a lot of the truth. It, it's very... You really watch the Vietnam documentary, and you go, our government in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, what a bunch of shitheads. <laughs> Excuse my language. Like, you just go, you guys knowingly sent 59,000 men to their death for no reason. You knew from the beginning that this war wasn't going to mean anything. And so it, the idea that the reason we went into Vietnam was for the Bell helicopters, or I'm going to ask you about the Brown brothers in a second. For those people is a very compelling argument to me, having studied a little bit about Vietnam. I mean, it, it, it was such a senseless, useless war that tore the fabric of this country to where we've not recovered. We now have our current problems because of Vietnam. Uh, it, it makes sense to me that the war was really about money and t- talk about the the brown brothers just briefly because i think that's 
I think that shows the li- the linear thinking of where we're at today. You know, it starts here and ends here, and it's the same people involved. Chris, your audience needs to know that you and I have gotten to know each other over the last few days, and you and I have had previous conversations, and you're helping me. Mm-hmm. To, to get to some points that you want your audience to know. So thank you for guiding me. Okay. When Chris and I met a few days ago, we eventually got to the topic of who benefits once Vietnam actually becomes this enormous event in our history. Who benefits? That's what we need to know. In 1965 and 1966... Hundreds of millions of dollars of government contracts were awarded to a construction company in Houston by the name of Brown and Root. That company is owned by two brothers, the Brown brothers, George and Herman Brown. Who are George and Herman Brown? Well, all through Lyndon Johnson's political life, dating back to 1937 when he first ran for Congress, the Brown brothers had been heavy financial contributors to Lyndon Johnson's political campaigns. They're very loyal to each other. Okay, look, that was the background I wanted your listeners, Chris, to have about who is this construction company, Brown and Root, and their owners, the Brown brothers. Dear friends of Lyndon Johnson, heavily helped heavily engaged in all of his political campaigns. So these government contracts awarded in 1965 and 1966 to Brown and Root, what is Brown and Root charged with doing? It is the Brown and Root Construction Company, Houston, Texas, that builds the infrastructure in South Vietnam, the roads, the bridges, that our millions of troops travel over through those rice paddies are built by Lyndon Johnson's dear friends, the Brown Brothers. And I think what Chris wants me to also say is, we don't hear about Brown and Root today, but they do exist. They are a subsidiary of a larger company that absorbed them some years ago, and the parent company of Brown and Root today is Halliburton. And I know Chris wanted me to say that. Yes. And Who, we what know is, what does Halliburton do now? And why why were why were they so controversial during Iraq? Do you know? Well I know that before Dick Cheney agreed to be George W. Bush's running mate, he was the chairman of the board of Halliburton. <laughs> The vice president. And he resigned that position to return to political life. And I know that Halliburton was heavily involved and achieved heavy profits during the Iraq war. So anyone listening to us, Chris, and I'm assuming your audience is going to be a little more knowledgeable than most audiences. They're brilliant people. Excellent. I'm glad. Very intelligent people. Chris, I'm going to sit up a little straighter now. (laughs) Okay. So, audience, we've all heard of Halliburton, and the reason Chris wanted me to bring the construction company that built all the roads and bridges in South Vietnam 50 years ago, 
the reason Chris wanted me to bring them to the current day is because we've all heard of Halliburton. Few of us know of Brown and Root. We've all heard of Halliburton. And what we're saying is if we don't pay attention, if we don't learn from our history, if we don't learn from our mistakes, those mistakes will appear again as we make new history. I I learned that in 2002. Three when I was in a class by a flaming leftist hippie named Susan Erickson uh, at IUPUI, and she and I debated the Iraq War almost every single day, and I was just a good little bushy, uh, and I just hook, line, and sink was like, we know, we need to do this. Uh, I've since come to realize how wrong I was, and she goes, who do you think start, she goes, do you think Vietnam was a mistake? Yes, I do. Okay, well then, why do you think Iraq would go better? I go, it's different people. She goes, it's not different people. Go look at, go look at Wikipedia at the career of Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz and John Bolton, and you go, oh, it isn't different people. It's the same people. And so, it it the way that politics generally works is that friends who are connected together kind of rise together and then help their friends out as they become president. I mean, Lyndon Johnson flat out says uh, when he's appointing him to. Uh, the Warren Commission, you know, I owe you everything, and now that I'm president, Bill Russell, uh, I'm a Bill Russell acolyte, and I'm going to do a lot for you, and so I need you to do this for me. I mean, that's how politics truly works. It's not what you see in the museums of this is for a greater cause, and I have a charge to keep, and this is public service. It's it's really about helping you and your friends get rich off of the dimes of the people listening to this podcast. But everybody listening is going... Okay, we get it. Get to the assassination part. We're an hour and a half in, and you haven't gotten to the part of why I tuned in. And what what I re- an hour and a half, Chris? Yeah. Have you? Can you believe you talked for an hour and a half? My, yes. So can you? <laughs> I, I that, can. That's why you've invited me. Yes, but uh, most people need to know why uh, Robin thinks that JFK was killed, and and his argument is persuasive. To understand what happened on that day, the idea of just one random nut job, maybe, maybe people assign conspiracies because they can't handle the randomness of one nut acting alone, and that's cha- too chaotic for our brains. Maybe, but when you look at the the things that he's talked about in the lead up, you go, okay, wow, all right. So a lot of that is convincing. So let's get to the actual day. Let's go back to the question of who are the decision makers. How was it put into motion? Why Dallas? Let's talk about like the immediate lead up in those two months going. Who's involved and why? And how does it take place? Chris, I think we've done a fairly decent job of explaining who the establishment was in 1960. But is it like Lyndon Johnson calling Hoover and they get a they're getting lunch at a restaurant and they're like, "Let's take Kennedy at him." I mean, how how does something like that in your opinion come about? I mean, is there hey. any evidence to say these are the decision makers? I guess maybe a more specific question. Chris, you want me to go to one phone call. Okay. I'm ready. But but I think we have done a good job of identifying who the president's enemies were. Shortly after the president decided in June of 63 that he's going to make a political trip to Texas in the fall to kick off the 64 campaign. Soon, 
A man at the Pentagon, an Air Force general named Edward Lansdale, gets a phone call. Now, before I tell you about the phone call, who's Edward Lansdale? In World War II, he's in Europe, he's in the OSS, and his immediate boss is Alan Dulles. Later, Edward Lansdale is an Air Force general at the Pentagon. And in the 1950s and the early 60s, when Alan Dulles wants a certain third world dictator assassinated or a certain third world government overturned, Dulles is a man in a suit. How does he overthrow a government? He needs military assistance. And he turns to his old assistant from World War II, Edward Lansdale, who runs a department at the Pentagon known as Black Operations. What do they do in the Department of Black Operations at the Pentagon? They overthrow governments at the behest of the director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. Remember, Dulles and Lansdale have worked together all the way back to World War II. When Kennedy makes his decision that he will come to Texas in the fall, Lansdale gets a phone call. And I imagine, audience, that Chris is going to make me tell you who calls Lansdale. And how do you know? (laughs) How can I prove this? When Lansdale finally receives this call, the person on the other end is a high-ranking official at the CIA named Richard Helms. We've all heard of Richard Helms. Eventually, Richard Helms ascended in the 1970s to be director of the CIA. But in 63, Richard Helms is the deputy director of plans. He's a higher up, but he's, he's not in charge. Yeah, imagine somebody goes, you're going to be the deputy director of plans. You go, you're making that title up. Uh, so he calls Lansdale. Is this recorded somewhere? Or is that, how do we know about this phone call? Something, first of all, Chris, there is no document that will implicate any important American in the murder of John F. Kennedy. Right, but is there like a call log somewhere that we know that this took place? If that call log ever existed. <laughs> right, why would, exist? why would it exist now? So, so Chris, I got your point. What I have to explain regularly to my clients, who are my clients? People who want to solve the Kennedy murder. What I have to explain all the time is, and I understand many of my clients are smarter than I am, but yet they're with me because they know I can connect dots for them. Mm -hmm. That's what I do. Sometimes, Chris, when I'm continually said, why, how do you know that, prove that, how do you know that, prove that, eventually I have to say something like what I'm going to say now, because I know. Okay. It's my job to know, and I know, yes, it's great if I can have concrete proof. But I believe because of what eventually took place that Lansdale gets that phone call. It is Helms, and I'm going to paraphrase because I cannot produce that phone conversation, Chris. I'm going to paraphrase Helms tells Lansdale we're going 
we need a plan. And if that conversation happened, I'm asking you to take what I think is not a large leap, but a small leap, and go with me on this, that that conversation occurred. What that means is at that point... The cabal, you gotta hold it. the cabal, right. the deep state has turned to someone to carry out this assignment who overthrows governments regularly. They've turned to Lansdale. This is the man that knows how to do this. Mm-hmm. Okay. How can I say this to you with confidence? Chris, let's go back to Fletcher Prouty. You are currently reading a book of retired Air Force Colonel Fletcher Prouty. Evidently, you're interested enough that you're reading one of his books. He has published two books. He is deceased, but in his life, he published two books concerning the Kennedy murder. Who is Fletcher Prouty, this Air Force Colonel, in 1963? He is Edward Lansdale's chief deputy in the black ops department Hmm. if you will refresh yourself with the movie jfk and when you get to the scene where jim garrison played by kevin costner is walking through the mall in washington with a man in a black hat and a black overcoat played by donald sutherland in that scene Sutherland is playing Fletcher Prouty. Why is Prouty important? Because Prouty is Lansdale's chief deputy. And one of Prouty's most important jobs is when an American president travels, Prouty will arrange for there to be military assistance to the Secret Service as a president is traveling through modern American cities. There will always be military assistance to the Secret Service in providing the president all the protection we can possibly muster. And in the fall of 63, Edward Lansdale at the Black Ops Department at the Pentagon dispatched his chief deputy, Colonel Fletcher Prouty, to be a military escort and accompany some congressmen to the South Pole to inspect a new U.S. military installation there. When Prouty is given those orders by Lansdale, he knows he's way overqualified to babysit these congressmen. Mm -hmm. But Prouty does, as everybody does in the military or in the intelligence world, he blindly follows his orders. On Saturday, November 23rd, Prouty, the Air Force colonel, is returning from the South Pole with the congressman. And they stop at an airport in New Zealand to refuel. This is Saturday, November 23rd, and Prouty picks up a newspaper in the terminal building at this New Zealand airport. And on the front page of this New Zealand newspaper, he reads that John F. Kennedy has been assassinated in Dallas, Texas. 
The entire front of this newspaper is talking about Kennedy's murder, and the newspaper even devotes a couple of columns to giving the entire life history of the man who has been accused in Dallas of murdering Kennedy. And this newspaper in New Zealand that Prouty has even has a studio-quality photograph of the man that's accused in Dallas of murdering President Kennedy. Prouty in New Zealand on Saturday the 23rd is reading all about Kennedy's murder, and he's reading an entire life biography of the man that the police in Dallas have arrested. And I think for context, before you reveal the punchline, as we say in the comedy world, think about school shootings or Vegas, and think about how many days it takes in the modern era with Twitter and photographs of everything and everybody. It took a week before we found out who did the Vegas shooting. It takes days before we figure out, you know, they have the suspect in, in like a, the Walmart shooting, for instance, because they're right there. But in the Vegas situation, it took days. So in 1963, it's amazing that they could have that kind of information. I mean, so when he's looking at this New Zealand newspaper, who is who is the the person that they've got the biography and the 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 studio photographs of? Well, before I continue, Chris, you and I should have been working together for years. <laughs> you, you and I are good for each other. Okay, Prouty is reading this newspaper and learns that a former Marine who d- went off the rails and became a communist named Lee Harvey Oswald, did this, and he also murdered a Dallas police officer as he was retreating. He hasn't been tried or convicted yet, but he's been accused and charged. And Prouty is amazed that this newspaper in New Zealand can have all this information so soon as you addressed. Prouty looks at his watch He knows it's Saturday morning, November 23rd in New Zealand, but he wants to start calculating what time is it exactly right now as I'm reading this newspaper. What time is it in Dallas, Texas? And he calculates that it's 8 p.m. Central Standard Time on Friday, November 22nd in November. In Dallas, Texas, which means that at 8 o'clock on November 22nd in Dallas, Oswald hasn't even been charged with the murder yet. (laughs) He wouldn't be charged until midnight that night with the crime. Yet the newspaper in New Zealand says he did it, and they're revealing his whole life history with an accompanying photograph. And when Prouty calculates that it's 8 p.m. Friday in Dallas, he has an epiphany. He realizes, oh, my God, my department at the Pentagon has just murdered our chief executive. He knows that no one, no entity on earth except his department at the Pentagon could carry this out and already have the news explaining who did it halfway around the world before Oswald is even charged with the murder. Because, he said leading the witness, they do it in Iran. (laughs) The day after the Shah's 
installed. Like that's the that that you'd go back and look through history. How many times something happens in Iran, and then magically the next morning you got the complete story in the American newspaper. Uh, that's that's fascinating. So Lansdale is the guy that is the ironically the director of the Department of Plans. Helms. Helms called and said, hey, come up with some plans. I don't have any. Uh, To Lansdale, and Lansdale's the one that orchestrated. So how did he carry that out, presuming that he was the one that did this? Not to insult you, I'll say allegedly. Allegedly. Right. I always welcome the word allegedly, Chris, especially when we're referring to Oswald. Right. He allegedly did this. He allegedly did that. Allegedly is good. Why would you believe a word I'm saying? But here we are. That was exactly what I was saying. Why? <laughs> but but you're you're believable to me. So why Lansdale? Why do you think that he? Uh, what what? How did he carry out? Why him? What, what's kind of the foundation of this belief? Remembering that this is what he does for a living. Mm-hmm. All he's doing is turning his skills and talents on his own commander in chief. This is his world. Right. This is not foreign to Lansdale, but he has now given, been given the authority to carry this out. He's got the connections in the upper echelons with the Dulles brothers, and yeah, so he's already he right. Lansdale is the establishment, but he's in the background, and the public's never supposed to see Lansdale. But we know about Lansdale because of Prouty basically coming back and you know eventually kind of telling the story. So what does Prouty? What does he find in terms of how the execution was taken? Prouty returns from New Zealand. Okay. He never confronts Lansdale because he doesn't want to reveal himself. (laughs) Now, here's what makes Prouty unique within the black ops. He's the only employee in the black operations department that is horrified that there's been a transition of power. Mm. But for some reason... Prouty has in his DNA a conscience, and he has some moral fiber. And he is horrified from the moment he reads the newspaper in New Zealand, and he figures out, my damn department did this. He's horrified, which means he has a conscience. Which they probably understood, and which is why they shipped him out. Yes. I believe that Lansdale got him out of the way. Because he he knew that Prouty had a moral fiber. Okay. Prouty returns. He never confronts Lansdale. He doesn't want Lansdale to think he's prying. But Prouty starts asking questions here, questions there. If Prouty had been in Washington to plan for the president's trip to Texas... He would have called a Colonel Reich at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio. Reich is Army Intelligence. And Prouty would have asked Reich to lend military assistance to the Secret Service for the five proposed presidential stops in Texas. And if Prouty had been allowed to do his job and to contact Colonel Reich, Anyone in the five Texas cities would have sensed a strong military presence as the president was driven through those cities. But none of that happened. 
Yeah. The president's protection, the president's security was greatly scaled down for this Texas trip. Who had the power to do that? We're talking about the people that had the power to do that. Right. Prouty calls Reich in San Antonio. Now, this is in early December. And Reich is furious with Prouty. He's furious because Reich got a phone call from someone at the Pentagon and said, you will stand down on the president's trip. Military assistance will be coming from another base. Hmm. The president is murdered in Texas on Colonel Reich's territory, and he's furious, and he launches himself into Prouty and says, you've set me up. This happened to me on my turf, on my watch. And Prouty has to explain to Reich, this is the colonel in Texas, in San Antonio, Antonio. no, you got to understand something. I wasn't here. Okay. Prouty realizes someone in his department arranged for there to not be any military assistance for the Secret Service on the Texas trip. And you and I both know this because you've been reading about Prouty. Prouty resigned his commission in the summer of 64, went into civilian life, and he spends the rest of his life studying the Kennedy murder. This will lead us back to November 22nd. You know, and I know, that there are a series of photographs. You can find them on the Internet. Anyone, anyone in your audience can, the moment they wish, go on the Internet and find a series of seven photographs of three men known as the Three Hobos in Dallas on November 22nd, 63. And Wikipedia has it as the three tramps. So if okay. you look it up on Wikipedia, okay. that's, that's... I'm sorry. No, it's okay. terminology was wrong. Why do I want us to talk about the three tramps? These are men who were pulled off of a railroad boxcar behind the grassy knoll in the moments after Kennedy was murdered. And because a lot of photographers are arriving on the scene... There are photographs being taken of Dallas County deputies moving these three men who amazingly wanted to jump into a boxcar, even though they're wearing Gucci's and have alligator belts. <laughs> I'm only exaggerating slightly. Slightly, but yeah. They're not dressed as men who would normally travel in a boxcar, and they are marched through the parking lot above the grassy knoll, past the Texas School Book Depository and into the county jail. To, let me give some uh, the lay of the land a little bit, because you've got Dealey Plaza, which was built under FDR's WPA, which, has, which is co- sort of where Dallas was founded. And they've got these white monuments that kind of like, you know, on, on either side of the road. The grassy knoll side is, let's say you're... Um, you just If you're looking at the depo- book depository, it's the one closest... And there's a road along the book depository, a brick road, uh, and down that road, there's to the to the left, you have the monument, and right behind that, there is a wood fence, and then just a little back further west of that, there's railroad tracks. 
Now, if you go on the other side, if you're at the book depository at the corner of Elm and Houston, Houston, then you go just a little bit south. Is that north or south? North. North. That's where the jail is. So they've kind of marched them in an L. And then where Kennedy was assassinated, if Houston goes north, uh, they turn you turn down to go west onto Elm. Elm. And that's where Kennedy was assassinated, kind of m- winding through these monuments. It may help if you just pull up Google Maps, look at Dealey Plaza, you'll kind of see what we're talking about. But the grassy knoll I always in my brain had like, oh, they were on top of the gra- there's like a little grass hill. But the grassy knoll's not the grassy knoll. Like it's it's like the shooting apparently happened over Abraham Zapruder's right shoulder behind a wooden fence, and then you're basically saying these three guys they ran from the fence back and jumped onto the boxcars to kind of blend in so they wouldn't wouldn't be seen by people. Yeah. Did I get all that right? Like Chris, you did. You almost have to be there, don't you? You kind of do. I think if you go and look, you kind of see what I'm talking about. But but I always like assumed he was. They were like laying on the ground, like snipers behind this little hill or bump or whatever. But when you go there and you stand where the shooters allegedly stood behind this wooden fence, and you see the tree coverings and the bush coverings, you kind of go, "Oh, I totally see how this is a valid theory." And so these three tramps basically kind of run back to the boxcar. They're marched on this L shape through the crowds and the photographers and everybody else. And they're photographed uh, by photographers in these series of seven that you're talking about. Chris and I stood at, at this picket fence a few days ago and we both commented, you actually have to stand here yeah. to grasp how shots can be fired here at the president. Okay. I, took, I took some photos, so I'll post those on my personal Facebook page. You can go check those out on my Instagram or my photos. You can kind of see the, the pictures that I took. So just to give further visual context to this, but continue. Sorry. It's all right. We're, we're both contributing to the same discussion here, Chris. You can, every one of you can find the tramp photographs. The reason we're talking about them, these Tramps are part of a group of conspirators who are waiting in Dealey Plaza that day to remove Kennedy. You don't have to believe me, but just listen to me as I talk about the three tramps. We have the series of photographs. And you can call them hobos. Whatever. I know that you're kind of like, tramps. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. Find the photographs. In one of the photographs, this will bring us back to Fletcher Prouty in a minute. In one of the photographs, you see the three men who have been pulled off the boxcar, who I say started out at the picket fence. These men are being marched towards the jail, but in one photograph, they're on a sidewalk being marched past the Texas School Book Depository, where Lee Oswald works. In this photograph where the hobos, the tramps, are on the sidewalk, walking one direction, there is a man in a light-colored business suit passing them, walking the other direction. There's very few people who would be able to identify who is the man in the business suit because his back is turned to the photographer. A few years after the Kennedy murder... Fletcher Prouty, the retired Air Force colonel who has now immersed himself 
into solving the murder is studying the series of photographs of the three tramps hobos. He's looking at this one particular photograph I'm describing. He starts studying the man in the light-colored business suit passing the hobos, and he is astonished to realize this man passing the hobos in the business suit is his boss, General Edward Lansdale. Now, how many people could have identified Ed Lansdale from behind? Not many. Right. But we're going to give Fletcher Prouty credit since he's known him for many years as being able to identify his boss that he works with every day. Because of Prouty identifying his boss, Lansdale, if Prouty is correct, if Prouty is not crazy like me. <laughs> right. Or as you said, you look normal, but you're crazy about me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I did say that. Yeah. <laughs> Tongue in cheek. If Prouty is correct, that means that the architect of Dallas... This Air Force general is not content to wait at his office in Washington to get the news. That means he had to be here. Mm. Okay. Is Prouty right? Is Prouty wrong? Read the book. Study the photographs. Decide for yourself. So the you have the architect was dallas chosen because of lyndon johnson's uh and obviously he's going to benefit from he's vice president i mean does johnson how much of a role does he play is that why dallas is chosen why they're coming to texas because texas is in play even though he was senator from texas and ran a lot of the political machine the Democratic Party at that time was split between the liberals and the uh, the conservatives. Within and the Democratic Party. Within the Democratic Party. The state is in play. The Democrats are threatening to kind of split apart. And so Texas is in a lot of danger, which is why they're kicking it off in Dallas. Jackie O has just given birth to John John, and this is her first uh, public appearance. So he really is trying to uh, bring out uh, a lot of people, trying to really gin up excitement you know he's got a parade through downtown dallas where he's you know going to be in the everybody kind of knows he's going to be in the open air car he's going to jack up apparently there's a platform that raises him up so people can see him he's really trying to make this exciting uh is dallas chosen because of those variables and Lyndon? it's part of this is knowing how to control the fallout and it seems like as you go through this story and some of the what I'll call theories of this the the, the establishment theory, let's say, it a lot of it is controlling the variables. Now there's the uh, like this this person that you're talking about that wrote these books. He's a variable that they couldn't control. He's in New Zealand. It's just a weird thing. But. Obviously, being Lyndon Johnson State, Lyndon Johnson City, having the connection with the mayor, understanding you know some of these things, is that why Dallas was chosen, do you think? Or does anybody know? Two things about Dallas. Dallas is controlled by big oil families. Mm. We've all heard of the Murkisons, the Hunts. Families like that do control the social and political structure of Dallas in those days. 
those families are considered ultra-right wing. Those families are no fans of the president because he is threatening to do away with the oil depletion allowance. We will not go into the oil depletion allowance. Listeners, look it up and study it. But the president is threatening to take independent oil contractors, one of their baubles, away from them. So when Kennedy comes to Texas in the fall of 63, the people who run Dallas are no fans of the president including Mayor Earl Cavill, the reason we discussed earlier. But remember this. The president's motorcade lasted six miles from Love Field, where Air Force One landed, to downtown and easing through the western end of downtown Dealey Plaza. In that six-mile stretch, 200,000 people see the president. How is that possible? If Dallas hates Kennedy, how can there be 200,000 people on the streets to see him and his beautiful wife? In fact, one or two minutes before the assassination, uh, Governor Conley's wife looks at Kennedy and goes, Dallas loves you, Mr. President. Let there be no doubt or something along those lines. Right. Yeah. So we've got these, these two different things. The people who run the city hate Kennedy. But somebody likes Kennedy because 200,000 people voluntarily left work and school to come see him. What I'm saying is the masses, the population, the general public evidently is not an enemy of the president. All of his opinion polls show that he is well-liked. I'm telling you, the power structure in Dallas does not like the president. But that didn't affect the citizenry of turning out and wanting to see the president. So you've got two different factions here. Yeah, so controlling who's asking what questions and how seems to be fairly uh, instrumental in a lot of this. And Lyndon Johnson's famous for leaning on people. Um, So let's talk about Dealey Plaza as we rode in your car. Uh, which you can ride in the replica car, which was a ton of fun, jfkcustomtours.com, to to book Robin for a tour. Dealey Plaza is one of the few times where they'd have to hang a a left on Houston onto Elm and take this curve. So let's talk about the motorcade and this curve that was chosen by whomever, for whatever reason. They take this curve, but... Let's say it's just even the lone gunman theory. Seems like kind of a stupid decision to slow everything down to take this, like, what is it, a 45-degree left? I mean, you're, you you had to really slow down. By design or by accident, seems like a, a, a weak point. So Oswald or whomever chose a fairly good spot. Because of of Dealey Plaza. I mean, why do you think Dealey Plaza was chosen? Is it for that reason? Yes. Overall, why Dallas? Because eventually, when the media explains to the public what happened, who controls the media? Who controls the media today? Mm -hmm. Who controlled the media in the 60s? When the media explains Dallas, because Dallas 
is controlled by several ruling families, it will be easy to explain that there's a hatred in Dallas for Kennedy. Right. Just like you saw in the Sixth Floor Museum, or I yes. saw, yes. as we opened with. Yes. Right. Why Dealey Plaza? This turn, listening audience, this turn Chris is describing, you would almost have to be there, but Google it and study it. The president's car had to make a really severe turn. Chris is asking, why do they make that turn? If you're in Dealey Plaza, remember that as the president is being moved through downtown, where they're trying to get him to is the Dallas trademark for a luncheon in his honor. Where's the trademark? It is three miles north of downtown. It is three miles north of Dealey Plaza. And the only way you can get from Dealey Plaza where the president is, to the trademark where his luncheon's going to be, is to get headed north on Interstate 35, which is just west of Dealey Plaza. Within Dealey Plaza, there's three main east-west streets, Elm, Main, Commerce, that are merging and going under a railroad underpass. But between Main and Elm and Commerce, there are curbs. And those curbs extend all the way to the entrance ramp to get on Interstate 35 North. The president wanted to be brought through town on Main. Why? Most of the major financial institutions were on Main. He wanted to be on Main. It is strategic that the president is being driven through downtown during the lunch hour. That's right. the president. Right. He wants to be brought through during the lunch hour. More people can get on the street. But as they get to where Dealey Plaza begins, they can't leave him on Main Street and get on the 35 North entrance ramp because there's a curb between Main Street and Elm Street. And the people that planned the motorcade, this is not nefarious. This was not to get him closer to the shooters, although it could appear that way. He obviously has to be moved off of Main Street on a side street over to Elm because the only way to get headed north on 35 from Dealey Plaza is to be in the far north lane of Elm Street, which means they have to negotiate the agonizingly slow turn off of a side street. They leave Maine. They get on a side street, which is Houston. He, the president is only on Houston for one block. And then they make this really slow turn after being north on Houston for a block, and they head west on Elm, and we've all seen this happen. But that is not part of the conspiracy. They have to get him onto Elm so that he can enter the 35 north entrance ramp. But it is an agonizingly slow turn. Why Dealey Plaza? Because the conspirators discover a spot where as the president makes this turn onto Elm, his car's already going slow. It will continue to go slow, and it's an area where they can surround him with rifles. And Chris has been there. Chris can expand on that.
But in the moment where the president is murdered, he is surrounded by riflemen. And they can all be concealed. They can all be hidden from the public. So let's start from east to west then of who were the riflemen in Dealey Plaza at that time. Everybody knows Lee Harvey Oswald up on the sixth floor. Is that the case? Do you believe that Lee Harvey was up in the, the sixth floor window of the book depository? He had gotten a job there a month before. I, I, th- I agree with you. They didn't choose the route, but the route was chosen, and then they took advantage of the weak spots. Uh, and the Texas Book Depository is definitely one of those. So who is in the Texas Book Depository? Okay, listening audience, understand this. You're not going to be able to say, Robin, how do you know that? How can you prove that? Just listen to me. Lee Oswald is a lousy shot with a rifle. Anyone who wants to take the time to figure out who Oswald is, find him, study Oswald. When he's in the Marines and he takes his rifle exams, he can't hit the broadside of a barn. And all the people who are in the Marines with Oswald know that. And the Warren people knew that in 64, that he's no good with a rifle. But the Warren people are going to eventually tell the world that a man that can't fire a rifle accurately kills Kennedy as he is a moving target moving away from Oswald. The window in the school book depository building that has been assigned to Oswald for the last 55 years of our history. There is a rifleman in that window at that moment. It's not Oswald, but there is a rifleman there. And there are three other shooting teams besides that rifleman waiting for the president. Across the street, just east of the Texas School Book Depository, is a biz office building called the Daltex Building. And there is a team of mobsters on the second floor of that building waiting to fire at the president. How can I prove that? Within Chris's broadcast here, I cannot prove that. I don't care if you believe me. Don't believe me. There's a team of mobsters on the second floor of the Daltex building waiting for the president. But they can't shoot at the president. They won't have a good shot until he leaves Houston and he heads west on Elm. And down below the president, above the grassy knoll, is a picket fence. And there are two shooting teams behind the picket fence waiting for the president. And some of the elements of those two shooting teams behind the picket fence are the men we referred to earlier as the three tramps or the three hobos. Now here's where the shooters are. And at the moment the president is driving down Elm heading west, those shooters in those different locations do have him surrounded, and that's why Dealey Plaza is chosen. He's going slow. He's just made that turn, and he's going slow, and he is a moving target, but he's going slow. Now, Chris, you haven't gotten me to this point yet, but since I'm on a roll, I'm just going to keep going. Go on. Listening audience, remember this. I have and I can talk about the Kennedy murder 
for 11 hours without stopping. <laughs> None of you are going to be subjected to that. I've got a flight that I've got to leave for in about 45 minutes, so no, you're not. <laughs> I will not subject Chris or the audience to that, but I can talk for hours without stopping. Do I know what I'm talking about? You be the judge. Remember this. I'll leave you with this thought. The president is murdered, and instead of driving him to the trademark, he has driven a half a mile past the trademark to Parkland Hospital. Once the president is at Parkland, he still has a pulse, even though a good portion of his skull has been destroyed by a bullet, but he still has a pulse, and technically he's still alive. When the surgeons at Parkland get to the room where Kennedy has been taken, these surgeons, these medically trained surgeons, identify an entrance wound in the president's throat, and they identify an entrance wound in his right temple. Absorb that. Think about that. If you believe the Warren report, if you believe the government's explanation of what happened, the Oswald window, Oswald is not in that window, but the Oswald window is behind the president all through the shooting sequence. So how can the president have entrance wounds on the front of his body? If the Parkland doctors are correct, the mythology that one man firing from behind the president did all the shooting and all the damage is a lie. Once again, don't believe me. Go on the internet and find one of the Parkland doctors, Malcolm Perry. Find Malcolm Perry on the internet. And on, on November 22nd at 2 p.m. that day, Perry looked into a television camera and said the president had an entrance wound in his throat. That means a bullet was fired at the president from in front of the president. So, Chris... I have monopolized your time. There is no way I can solve this murder before your flight. No, no, no. We've got we've got a few more because I've got a couple more questions. Unless you really got to go. All right. Unless you no, really got to go. I'll I, stay with you. I got a couple more. Yes, sir. Because um, we're probably both getting ready for a bathroom break, uh, I'm sure. So uh, the where I think a little bit of this breaks down is why the mob? Why would the mob be there and wouldn't you start to get a breakdown of the chain of silence if you start incorporating the mob into this. Why not just keep the CIA contract killers all involved? Why add that team in that building? This is a very disturbing thing I'm about to say, but it's a fact. I can prove it. Fact check me and go on the Internet. Our government, the United States government has had a business relationship with the American mob since World War II. I'm not going to explain how or why. Look it up. If you don't believe me, look it up. And the mob, by the summer of 63, is fed up with the Kennedys, even though the mob assisted in the 60 election for Kennedy. By the summer of 63, the mob is done with the Kennedys, because the president's kid brother, Robert Francis Kennedy, is deporting mobsters. Don't ask me why. We don't have time to get into that. But the mob has had it with the Kennedys by the summer of 63. And because they are business partners with the intelligence community of our government, 
they are asked to participate and they willingly and gladly participate. Doubt me, assume I'm lying, but if you're interested, look it up. The mob wants to be involved, and Lansdale, the Air Force General, invites them to be part of this moment in our history. Okay, so who is in the sixth floor window? If it is not Oswald. If Oswald is just there to get him in and out of the building, who's in that window? Oswald does not participate at any level in the murder of the president. Oswald's job is to be blamed for all this. He doesn't know that. But just remember, Oswald does not participate at any level. So who is the rifleman in the Oswald window? Chris is going to make me tell you. Chris already knows. He wants me to tell you. (laughs) The shooter in that window, sixth floor, Texas School Book Depository, is a man named Malcolm Wallace. Who is Malcolm Wallace? You can find him on the Internet. Who is he in 1963? He is an employee of Lyndon Baines Johnson. There is no way I have the time to prove that to this listening audience, Chris, but you go ahead. I that's know you that, well, that's why people ought to, ought to take the tour so they can ask these questions a little deeper. We're... We got. We've only got about thirty minutes left together. So, uh, I he's he's. I, I just want to let you know we got thirty more minutes. You don't have okay. to rush too much. Okay. Yes. So, Chris is prompting me that I can keep talking about Malcolm Wallace. Please. All right, Chris. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's okay. Yeah, having read the Robert Caro books on LBJ, he's a thoroughly sociopathic individual who, I mean, makes jokes to the wife of Henry Luce. Claire Booth Luce, Henry Luce ran all these newspapers and magazines. You know, he jokes to the wife of a publisher that, you know, one in eight presidents gets murdered, one in four presidents gets murdered, and he's a betting man. I mean, so, uh, uh, you know, LBJ jokes about uh, the assassinating Kennedy or him getting assassinated. So it it isn't crazy to me to hear what you're about to say about what Wallace does for LBJ. Who is he and what does he do for him? Is he, what is he, his uh, maid? <laughs> he, he is not, Chris, but thanks for prompting me. Okay. Chris is encouraging me, listening audience, so deep. here we go. Let's go. We're, we're already, you know, what, what some might consider crazy land. Let's keep going. <laughs> when the Democrats have their convention in the summer of 1960, it is a foregone conclusion that John F. Kennedy, the senator from Massachusetts, will be nominated to be their party's candidate for president. But Lyndon Johnson desperately wants to be president, but he can see there is a tidal wave of support in his party for Kennedy. And he's very frustrated and he's angry about it. He has waited for years to be president. Now, as Chris said earlier, The president's young brother, Robert Kennedy, hates Lyndon Johnson and does not want Lyndon Johnson to join the ticket. But his brother, John F. Kennedy, looks at Lyndon Johnson as someone who could help him carry the southern states in a national election. Johnson is a southerner. Kennedy is from the northeast. He believes Johnson could help him on the ticket 
carry the southern states. And even though Bobby strongly argues with his brother to not invite Lyndon, John F. Kennedy asked Lyndon Johnson if he would join the ticket and be the vice presidential candidate at the Democrat convention in Los Angeles in the summer of 60. At that convention, after Johnson accepts the offer, now who is Johnson? He is the majority leader of the U.S. Senate, and he is probably the third most powerful person in Washington. We all know if you're the majority leader of the U.S. Senate, you wield a lot of power. Johnson is that person in 1960. And if he agrees to be Kennedy's running mate, and if they succeed and they are elected, that means Johnson will be succeeding, will be surrendering a lot of personal power to be an errand boy for the new president. And some of Johnson's closest friends and advisors come up to him in Los Angeles at the convention, and they say, Lyndon, why are you doing this? And his answer is, I'll be one step closer. Mm -hmm. Okay, that brings us back to some of the things Chris was talking about earlier with Claire Booth Luce, the wife of publisher Henry Luce. Okay, I'm telling you the sixth floor shooter on November 22nd is a man named Malcolm Wallace. And I'm telling you that Malcolm Wallace is an employee of Lyndon Johnson. How do I know that? How can Crazy Robin in Dallas prove that? When the FBI got to the sixth floor of the book depository that afternoon, by the way, the Dallas chief of police, Jess Curry, and the Dallas County Sheriff, Bill Decker, both of those lawmen receive a phone call that afternoon from the director of the FBI, Hoover. And Hoover co-ops the police chief and the sheriff that very afternoon by telling them, you will stand down. I'm investigating this murder. This is an FBI investigation, and you will both assist me. And they're both furious with Hoover, but they don't let him know they're furious because they know he could ruin their careers. But Hoover is in control of everything that happens after the shooting ends. And FBI agents are flooding into Dallas from all over the country. But Friday afternoon, FBI agents from the Dallas field office get to that sixth floor window believe that rifle fire has come from that window, and they start dusting that whole six-floor window area for fingerprints. Now, fingerprints don't accomplish anything unless the fingerprint you lift from a crime scene can match someone's fingerprints that already has a record with the cops. Right. Fingerprints don't help if you've never been fingerprinted before. Well, what the FBI is hoping to accomplish when they dust that whole window area is that they can potentially lift some prints that may belong to someone that already has a record with the FBI. And out of all the prints they lift that day, 
only one set of prints matches someone with a criminal record with the FBI. And that set of prints belongs to a man named Malcolm Wallace. Who is he? How do I know he's an employee of Lyndon Johnson? I don't know if Chris believes he's an employee of Lyndon Johnson. But since Chris has me talking to you, here we go. The reason Malcolm Wallace has a file with the FBI is because he was convicted of capital murder in Austin, Texas in 1951. So, why does Malcolm Wallace have a record? Why was he convicted of murdering another human being in Austin, Texas in 1951? Now, Chris said earlier, Johnson is very powerful even more powerful in the state of Texas. But Johnson's base of operations is Austin, Texas. That's where he's from. That's where he and his wife own companies and radio stations and television stations. The Johnsons are a very strong presence in Austin. Lyndon Johnson has a sister named Josepha. Josepha lives in Austin. Josepha Johnson has a boyfriend. And this boyfriend turns up dead in 1951 on the floor of his business that he operates in Austin, Texas. Now, it's no secret that Lyndon Johnson doesn't like his sister's boyfriend. Josepha is an alcoholic, and Johnson knows that when his sister is drinking, she talks more than she should talk. And Lyndon Johnson has a lot of secrets that he doesn't ever want the public to know. Anyway, a man is murdered in Austin. He is the boyfriend of Josepha Johnson, and there is the police investigate this murder, and eventually arrest a man named Malcolm Wallace. And Malcolm Wallace is tried and convicted by a jury of his peers in an Austin courtroom for this murder. When it's time to sentence the man who is convicted, Malcolm Wallace, of this crime of capital murder, When it's time to sentence Malcolm Wallace, the judge gives him a five-year suspended sentence. And Chris and I discussed this the other day. In the whole history of Texas jurisprudence, the only time an individual has ever been tried and convicted of murdering another person did that person that was convicted never spend a day in prison. The judge in the case gave Malcolm Wallace a five-year suspended sentence. He never spent a day in prison. How is that possible? Well, remember who Lyndon Johnson is when this decision is reached. But because Malcolm Wallace was convicted of capital murder in Austin, Texas. 
1951, but by the time his trial and the con- and the sentencing occurred was early 52. Because that event did occur, the FBI has a file on Malcolm Wallace. And amazingly, this man who has been employed by Lyndon Johnson since 1948, Malcolm Wallace, amazingly, Malcolm Wallace, who has murdered on orders from Lyndon Johnson previously, amazingly, Malcolm Wallace's fingerprints are recovered from that window of that building that day. And when the FBI agents finally have their match that evening of the fingerprints they have recovered from that window, and they match the fingerprints of the man with the file in Washington, Malcolm Wallace, FBI agents readily report that to their boss, Hoover. But those fingerprints will not deter Hoover. Hoover has already determined it is Oswald in that window. Oswald acted alone with no assistance. Fingerprints be damned. All other evidence that starts showing that Oswald is innocent, that evidence be damned. Hoover has his man. It is Oswald. Is it troubling? Is it perplexing to any of you? that the man accused of the crime of the century, the murder of John F. Kennedy, is gunned down two days later in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters, and he is murdered, Oswald is murdered, while he is surrounded by over 70 law enforcement officers by a Dallas businessman named Jack Ruby. Is that moment in our history The Oswald murder, is that troubling to any of you? The answer should be yes. Well, Jack Ruby was uh, owned a strip club in town that a lot of police frequented, and uh, he apparently slipped in with reporters. And when he he, uh, shot Oswald and they all tackled him, he looked up and goes, Hey, guys, it's me, Jack Ruby, basically. (laughs) And the documentary I watched, the cop who was there goes, It was almost like he thought we were just going to go, Hey, good job, man. Thanks a lot. He thought he could get away with it. So let's go to the so if the if the death shots basically came from the grassy knoll, who was over there? Okay, Chris is going to make me talk about the grassy knoll shooters. Well, I mean, if those are the people who actually did it, then we got to the most damage came from those shooters, Chris. That is true. Okay. Earlier we talked about the three tramps. Some know them as the three hobos. One of the hobos. Remember, we have a series of seven photographs. It's not just Robin and Chris lamenting about the three hobos. You can find them. Look them up. Look at their pictures. Look at their faces. One of the tramps marched into the county jail that day in Dealey Plaza is six foot three and he's blonde, and he's in his mid-twenties. Doesn't really sound like a hobo. He's young, he's tall, he's blonde. But I am implicating him in the president's murder. Who is this tall hobo? By the early 70s, 
a, a, a very large number of Americans have rejected the Warren findings. What are the Warren findings? One man acting alone did all this by himself. And by the early 70s, a large number of Americans have rejected that explanation and gone out on their own to solve the murder. And from those doubts of the Warren findings was created a part of American society called Kennedy Researchers. That's the world I'm in. I'm second generation. I stand on the shoulders of people who came before me, people who have forgotten more about the Kennedy murder than I will ever know. But Kennedy researchers come from American society because a great number of Americans don't believe what our government's explanation told us. And in Kennedy research, in that world, people devoted to solving the murder. Kennedy researchers are studying these seven photographs of the tramps' hobos. And they come to believe that the tall, blonde-haired hobo is a notorious hitman by the name of Charles Harrelson. Who is Charles Harrelson? He is a hitman. He's a soldier of fortune. He's a mercenary. He is a contract agent of the CIA. And on November 22nd, 1963, Charles Harrelson is pulled off of a railroad boxcar, marched through the parking lot beyond the grassy knoll into the county jail. And there are photographs taken of Charles Harrelson. Now, here's the Kennedy researchers' problem. Kennedy researchers are described in the major mainstream media as assassination nuts, as conspiracy nuts. So who would believe a Kennedy researcher that the tall, blonde-haired tramp who was pulled off of a boxcar that day, moments after the president was murdered, who would believe one of us that says the tall, blonde-haired hobo is infamous hitman Charles Harrelson. Well, in 1991, Kennedy researchers, people like me but more skilled than me, went to see a woman in Houston named Lois Gibson. Who is Lois Gibson? There is a science known as facial forensics. And most law enforcement agencies will employ someone who is educated and skilled in the science of facial forensics. Lois Gibson, for many years, has been considered one of the world's foremost experts in that field, Lois Gibson. In 1991, Lois Gibson was employed by the Houston Police Department. And Kennedy researchers, about the time that the movie JFK was released to the public, Kennedy researchers went to Houston, and they have an appointment that they've made with Lois Gibson. And here's what they want her to do. They show her pictures of noted hitman Charles Harrelson, an expert with a rifle. And they show her pictures of the three tramps. 
and they want her to study the pictures of the three tramps and the pictures of hitman Charles Harrelson, and they want her opinion. Is the tall hobo Charles Harrelson, or are we crazy? And Gibson, this is important. Listen, if you're falling asleep, listen. (laughs) In that moment in 1991, Lois Gibson. Who is Lois Gibson? She's not a Kennedy researcher. She's not a conspiracy nut. She's a respected expert in the field of facial forensics. Lois Gibson determines using her skills that noted hitman Harrelson is the six foot three hobo. Why is that important? Because now Kennedy researchers have taken it to a deeper level. It's no longer Kennedy researchers saying it's Harrelson. It's a respected world leader in facial forensics. That gets us to another level in my world, Kennedy research, of establishing it's not our suspicions, it's not our hopes, it's not our dreams that Charles Harrelson is one of the hobos, one of the men behind the fence at the moment of the president's murder, it's now documented. It's a fact, and that's important if you're trying to get to the truth of who murdered our 35th president. Well, Charles Harrelson's son says that he was there, right? Okay, Chris wants me to now drag you listeners in deeper. Just briefly, but yeah, I think this is a fun fact. Okay. Chris learned the other day that Woody Harrelson, this tall hobo, now that it's documented, we know Charles Harrelson is an assassin, that he made his living as an assassin. And now we know he was standing behind the fence on November 22nd. You don't have to believe me. A world expert in facial forensics, Lois Gibson, now tells us that is Harrelson. Harrelson was estranged from a son. He had a son. He never lived with the son. His son's name is Woody Harrelson. Yes, audience, Chris wants you to know that the bartender from Cheers has a father who was standing behind that fence that day. Even as recently as a couple months ago in Esquire, he said that yeah, his dad was there. It's on his Wikipedia, a few statements. So so I thought that was that was an interesting, fun fact. Do you think that the other two hobos I've seen online, just kind of looking up these guys up, some people think they're Howard Hunt and I forget the other guy's name, who were plumbers in the Watergate break-in. Uh, do you think that the other two hobos were connected to Watergate? They were Hunt and uh, I forget the guy, Stiglitz, I forget his name. Uh, Chauncey Holt. And... and uh uh, it's like a guy with a German name. I forget. What Chris wants us to talk about, what we know, what we want you to know, is that several of the Watergate burglars, remember Watergate is what brings down Nixon, but, but Nixon's ending came from a burglary in 1972, Watergate Hotel, Washington, D.C., Democratic Party headquarters. But in fact... Some of those burglars are career employees of the Central Intelligence Agency. 
And eventually, some of the Watergate burglars who are tried and convicted of that crime and who go to prison are several men who are employees, full-time employees, or contract agents of the CIA. E. Howard Hunt. A man named Frank Sturgis. That's it. That's what I was thinking. A man named G. Gordon Liddy. And another man named Bernard Barker. They all went down in history as Watergate burglars. Are they burglars? No. They're all connected to the Central Intelligence Agency. Now, the reason Chris wants us to discuss this, people in my world maybe even people beyond my world, believe that one of the hobos, not the tall hobo, Charles Harrelson, but another hobo from those series of pictures is E. Howard Hunt. The, the, and this is the hobo who is wearing a hat and is older than the other two. Find him, find those pictures, study it for yourself. But one of the hobos is older and he's wearing a hat. That hobo does bear a striking resemblance to career CIA officer E. Howard Hunt. Hunt never would admit that he was in Dallas that day until he makes a deathbed confession. At the end of his life, he confessed to being involved. Okay. Today, I'm sitting here with Chris. I will tell you that the older hobo with the hat on is either E. Howard Hunt or a CIA contract agent by the name of Chauncey Holt. Holt admitted through the years that he was the older hobo. Hunt didn't admit it till the end of his life. The bottom line is they're both assets of the Central Intelligence Agency. Look up Chauncey Holt. Look up Howard Hunt. There's another hobo. I'm assuming Chris wants me to identify the third hobo. Can't leave him hanging like that. Okay, Chris. He's you can't see this. He's he's holding one of my arms behind my back. <laughs> okay. One of the hobos, once again, don't take my word for this. Don't take Chris's word. Look these people up on the internet. Find them. One of the hobos is young and dark-haired. His name is Charles Rogers. No one ever wants to know about him, but today we're talking about him. Who's Charles Rogers? He's sometimes known as Richard Montoya. He's sometimes known as Frenchie. But his given name at birth is Charles Rogers. He's from Houston, Texas. His son is Tony Danza. I'm going to die. <laughs> In injecting a little humor is always good. Okay, Charles Rogers. He's a former employee of the Shell Oil Company, Houston, Texas. Now, for those of you who want me to prove how do I know the dark-haired hobo is Charles Rogers. Tough. I don't have time. I don't have the inclination to prove it. But look up Charles Rogers. Here's what I can tell you about Charles Rogers. In the late 50s, Charles Rogers left the employ of Shell Oil Company and became an independent contractor for the Central Intelligence Agency. I can also tell you this about Charles Rogers. In 1965, Charles Rogers' parents were found brutally mur murdered in their home in Houston. And neighbors 
of Charles Rogers' parents had recently seen Charles Rogers visiting his parents. To my knowledge, Charles Rogers has never been seen publicly since the day in 1965 that his parents' bodies were discovered in their home in Houston. Hmm. Okay, I'm giving you names, people. Don't believe me. Look these things up. When I got on this case, there was no Internet. But today, you can fact-check me. Go on the Internet. Find the hobo pictures. Find Charles Rogers. Find Charles Harrelson. Find E. Howard Hunt and Chauncey Holt. Chris, here's what Chauncey Holt admitted to doing in the fall of 63. He said on occasion he was asked to make identification cards for government employees that were not official employee cards. And on November 22nd, 63, after the president is murdered, many eyewitnesses know that there's rifle fire coming from behind a fence which was in front of the president. And as those eyewitnesses run up some steps on the grassy knoll to get behind the fence, they are confronted by men in suits. And these men in suits flash credentials showing them to be Secret Service agents. And those men in suits flash these credentials and tell these eyewitnesses to the president's murder that no rifle fire has come from behind a fence. These men in suits rebuff these eyewitnesses and tell them, move out, move away, get away from this area. Despite video evidence of people clearly running that direction, and even at the Sixth Floor Museum, you have several witnesses on the walls there saying, I thought the shooting came from the grassy knoll. Chris is adding additional layers of facts and evidence and testimony from eyewitnesses from that day. Here's the problem, folks. Most of the people in Dealey Plaza at the moment this happened think the shots are coming from the grassy knoll, which is in front of the president. But uh, eventually, our government tells us that all the shots come from behind the president. And anything, any one, any evidence, any testimony from November 22nd that comes forward that contradicts all the shooting coming from behind the president, those people are either dismissed or diminished or they end up dead of unnatural causes. Okay, those men behind the picket fence in the moments after the shooting who have Secret Service credentials, those are not Secret Service agents. There were no agents on the ground that day. I know that. We don't have time to get into that. You can either believe me or not believe me. I heard so, the story. I can vouch for him. So who are those men behind the fence with Secret Service credentials? Well, one of the hobos, one of the men who has admitted he was one of the hobos, Chauncey Holt, find him. He said on occasion he made fake ID cards for the United States intelligence community. So if those men behind the fence aren't Secret Service agents, where did they get their IDs? Well, one of the hobos might have been the man that produced the IDs. So this is my final question. It is not. Uh, uh, the, the, I'll probably ask you one more for recommendations All for right. people. But 
If all this is true and you've got all these different shooters, you know, you have the, the, what really falls apart in the Sixth Floor Museum on the official story is the pristine bullet, as they call it, or the magic bullet, where this bullet comes from Oswald's gun. There are only three shots, and one of the bullets came from his gun, went through Kennedy, went into Conley, went all, it was zigzagged through everybody. And it was perfectly pristine. It didn't explode. It didn't blow up. And their explanation is, oh, well, it was a military-grade bullet. It just, it's very hard to believe. So if you Google pristine bullet, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. But when you, you have a lot of eyewitnesses who say, I only heard three shots, or there were only four bullets, or there were only three bullets, if you have this many people firing, wouldn't there be a lot more bullets found? That, that's the only part where your version of the story where I go, you'd have a lot more witness statements of hearing more gunshots or finding more bullets in the ground. I mean, how, how do you reconcile that? There are photographs from Dealey Plaza in the aftermath showing men in suits picking up bullets and removing them, yet they never end up being part of the evidence. Mm. Earlier, Chris, you said if the mob's involved, why wouldn't somebody brag? Mobsters bragged for years they got Kennedy. Mobsters did brag. Many people bragged. A lot of people talked about this. Here's the problem. The people that are charged with investigating Kennedy's murder, we know them today as the Warren Commission, But Chris and I know it's a couple of congressmen, a couple of senators, an industrialist, and the former CIA director, Alan Dulles, who Kennedy fired in 1961. Does it bother any of you that one of the Warren Commission members is an enemy of Kennedy's, (laughs) Alan Dulles? It should bother us if we know about that. Another member was Gerald Ford, who, as soon as he got to Washington, started currying favor with the FBI and and uh, Hoover, the future president, basically was like, no, please buy me off. And then he did everything he can to kind of, on the Warren Commission, move things the way that Hoover wanted it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're, the cover-up seems... So your answer to the bullet thing kind of makes sense. Also, in, in the days after Dallas, as these people who become the Warren Commission, as they start assembling for their first meetings... Hoover meets with them, and he tells them. He doesn't suggest. He tells them, you won't need any investigators. I'm your investigator. I'm the FBI, and I will provide you everything you need to know. I'm telling you, listening audience, the people who were charged with investigating the crime of the century did not hire one investigator. Is there anything wrong with that? The answer is yes. They hired lawyers. We know they tell the truth. (laughs) Uh, So if people want to read more or watch documentaries or what are a few books or movies or what what are some things that people could go and check out other than going to jfkcustomtours.com and and flying to Dallas. If you live in Dallas, definitely stop by. And if you do, make sure to tell them that you heard him on the podcast just so he knows that this was a long three hours sitting on this bench, and it's, it's very gracious with his time, and our butts hurt, and we have to pee, and we're hungry. And uh, so please let him know that this time was worth it if you do see him. But what books or, or movies or what, what are some resources that people could go and check out if they wanted to know more? There's hundreds of books on the Kennedy murder 
There's dozens of documentaries and movies. Since you've asked, I'll recommend one book and one documentary. The book, JFK and the Unspeakable, James Douglas, 2008. The documentary, Coup in Camelot, C-O-U-P, in Camelot, 2014. If you have that book and that documentary, you will be well-equipped to go as deep as you want to go. And it gets dark, and it gets ugly. This is a very dark chapter in our history. I have many friends in the research community. I will anger some of them by only recommending one book. (laughs) But if you have to have one book, and you have to get to the truth, those are my recommendations, Chris. Uh, I'm reading, and I really do like this book that I'm I'm on audiobook, A Cruel and Shocking Act by Philip Sheenon. Basically documenting, he he's a New York Times journalist who started documenting the Warren uh, report and how it worked. Uh, it's an, I, I don't get the sense that he's a conspiratorial guy in any way. It's just sort of like, here's the flat reporting on the Warren Commission and how it all kind of falls apart for him. So uh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, but I'm certainly not anywhere near your level of knowledge, and I really do appreciate the time. Uh, you, you've been very gracious. You've been fun. And hopefully the audience knows exactly why I wanted to spend some time with you and, and here. And so if you're in Dallas, definitely again, JFK custom tours.com and, uh, tell them that we sent you. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to people? Any final self promotion or final thoughts or what, what would you like to leave people with? Chris, I like to stay in the background. Okay. I'm glad we met. I've enjoyed being with you. I appreciate you inviting me on your program. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on. And next time in Dallas, I'm going to come see you again. We'll look forward to that. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.